JPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 339. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 803 in the Ambassador Hotel in Wichita, Kansas. Today's show was recorded on the 3rd of September, 2018. In today's episode, high-altitude fish drop, airdrop of a disturbing photo, a broken flux capacitor causes plane crash, more news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, the Bong Bridge. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 339 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast that we do weekly. We talk about stuff in the aviation news and also answer your feedback. And joining us from Doctor? her doctor. Doctor. lovely doctor. lakeside doctor. studio in South doctor. Carolina, doctor. a doctor, doctor, skydiver, doctor. marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument-rated pilot and all-around great person, Dr. Steph. Well, thanks, Captain Jeff. It's good to see you again. It's good to um, be heard, I guess. Uh, we'll see how yes. long my voice holds out today. I think it's significantly improved, although it's clearly not 100% yet. So my apologies to everyone for last week. And uh, I was really sick last week. <laughs> <laughs> So. so it was just not, it wasn't just your voice then. It was uh, you know, it, more than that. It started off that way. Um, it was kind of a weird week. I, I woke up on uh, Sunday last week with a sore throat, which I kind of attributed to being at a get together the night before and having, you know, been speaking loudly in a crowd of people and it's like, oh, no big deal. Went away. And then I felt kind of off all day that day on Sunday. The next day I woke up, felt better for the most part. And then Tuesday just started gradually losing my voice throughout the day for no real reason that I could tell. And then Wednesday was just gone completely, but I felt fine. And then Thursday, I think I just developed a bad sinus infection on top of all of it. And it's been pretty ugly since then. I mean, bad enough that I took time off of work and actually went and got myself checked out and antibiotics. And Oh, it must have been bad for a doctor to actually... <laughs> take time off and go somewhere to have it treated or whatever it was it was pretty bad it was yeah a lot of congestion a lot of uh coughing up gross do you think that that is because of your exposure to all the various patients that you see i have no idea what this is from to be honest yeah so i mean it started on a weekend so who knows yeah well, we're glad that uh, you're feeling better, number one, yes. and number two, that your voice is better, and we can actually understand you. What was it, uh, Wednesday of last week, I think, that uh, you made a yeah. brief appearance on yeah. uh, the he show? He said, yeah, come by, say hi. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, I, I can't. I physically cannot 
say hello. I think Nick did a pretty good uh, impression of you. Yeah, um, I think he did. <laughs> he actually had a little bit of squeaking, yeah. a squeakiness to his uh, voice as well. So you'll notice that uh, it's just Steph and I today. Uh, we are doing, um, sometimes we do this. If we, uh, one of the hardest things, I hate when I start one thought and then I switch to another mid sentence. Sorry Get about your that. Thoughts you'll together. Try Get to keep your thoughts together. everything together <laughs> if you can. Uh, but, um, yeah, one of the hardest things about doing this show with um, co-hosts is, and especially with co-hosts that live all around the world and, well, mostly here in the United States, but, you know, Nick over in London, uh, airline pilots uh, that have, you know, kind of crazy schedules. And then, of course, Dr. Steph, you would think that she'd be stable and never travel anywhere, but of course, her she does everything, so many different true. things. Yeah. So it's tough for us to get all together at the same time uh, at some point during the week or weekend. And so after we record these shows, we uh, I keep banging my mic. Sorry. After we record these shows, we uh, are still on the hangout together and we start talking about, okay, next week, what's everybody's schedule like and, you know, what would be the best day? And sometimes we have to resort to doing this uh, where we do uh, multiple parts, like a two-part show. That That's what we're doing on 339 here. We're going to do a two-parter. Hopefully, it'll only be two. And uh, Steph, you are only available today, and mm-hmm. the rest of the week's out for you. And then Nick uh, and Dana weren't available for today, but we're going to do our part on Friday. So hopefully, we'll be able to try to limit it to a, an hour and a half today and an hour and a half on Friday. So we'll yeah, see how that I works. I think we've done a good job of picking out. Um, we, I picked all the lighthearted stuff for myself today. I'm leaving all the heavy, sad, depressing things for Nick and Dana to. Yeah, because, you know, the guys, it's always that's always appropriate to do. Sad. You know, I was, I've, I've been sick. I, I just want some fun <laughs> stuff to talk about. Well, I don't blame you. I'd rather talk about fun stuff, and, uh, too. So uh, other than the sickness stuff, anything else interesting going on in uh, I haven't done, I haven't done anything. I mean, it was such a, such a slug for the past couple of days. You know, it's, it was terrible because it's, as you said, it's a holiday weekend here. And we've actually had really nice weather for the most part. And I've really not been outside to enjoy much of it, which is kind of sad and depressing. But at the same time, I was really glad that I did not have to go to work today. So I have an extra day to kind of continue recovering, sleep in a little bit. And I'll tell you though, they, uh, they did give me some steroids to take a short dose of a short course of prednisone. And I was up to like two o'clock in the morning last night because prednisone really makes it difficult for you to sleep sometimes. Yeah. What does <laughs> it do? You like, wired. Oh. It's, you know, it's a, yeah, it's a steroid. So, so it would be, be as little, if you had caffeine, if you could, basically. no wait, caffeine, you can, it's yeah. coffee. Oh, it's just right. coffee. Yeah. Anyway, it's as yeah. if you, you know, have a couple cups of coffee right as you want to go to bed and then you know i found for me uh i think uh what is it capsaicin in um hot sauces or from chili peppers mm-hmm. kind of uh it has the same effect on me uh keeping me from getting a good night's sleep yeah so it just upset your stomach so much that you can't <laughs> i don't know if it it's like it gets into my bloodstream and just like makes me just like caffeine it just kind of yeah i can't relax a little agitated so, yeah. yeah anyway um, that's neither here nor there. So no, not really. I mean, because of that, I had a lot of, uh, I was feeling a little bit better yesterday too, even though my voice was a little worse than today. So I took advantage of some of that little burst of energy during the day to rearrange furniture and do a little shopping and, you know, and you went out for a run early to earlier today. I went right? for a run this morning, just three miles. That's the first time I've run in like a week. Ah. So it was, 
I, I, I had planned to do it in two parts. I was going to do six miles, a three mile loop, and then another three mile loop. I got back from my first three mile loop and was coughing pretty violently. So I took that as a sign that I should probably not push my luck. Yeah. That's yeah. listening to your body. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see for me, um, got home on Thursday from that last trip. And, uh, finally it took me a while this week to get the uh, show edited. I finally got it out on Sunday, uh, over the weekend was home and, uh, got to watch the, um, the Grand Prix, uh, oh, in, yes. uh where was, was it? Uh, Monza, uh, Italy, the Italian Grand Prix, Grand Prix. Yeah, it was yesterday. Um, yeah, so, uh, got a bunch of stuff done, some personal stuff. Um, so really don't want to talk about that. Um, yeah, that's it. Um, and then I had this trip, but this trip is a great trip. Uh, the only downside is that I'm flying on Labor Day, but that's okay. We never do anything on, on Labor Day anyway in my family. So, uh, it was just a pretty much another Monday for for me mm-hmm. and our, our family. So I saw this trip and, and, and sometimes when you fly on the holidays, the trips are a little odd. You know, you, they're, uh, you may only fly, for instance, one flight on a certain day. Like today, for me, it was just one leg from Atlanta to here in Wichita. Oh, well, that's nice. And then the rest of the day off. And then tomorrow is only two legs and end up in Dulles uh, at uh, Washington Dulles International uh, for a uh, nice long layover. Get in right around noon. And then uh, Wednesday, no, yeah, Wednesday, I'm in um, Springfield, Mass. Uh, get in, you know, mid to late afternoon, and then uh, one leg home on uh, Thursday morning. So nice. it's actually a really good trip, I think. Yeah, it's well, it sounds uh, sounds laid back, sounds leisurely. Yeah. So I'm not. I did just a little bit of labor flying the airplane. From Atlanta to uh, Wichita today, but uh, not much. So, I mean, more than an Airbus pilot would do, but oh, yeah, yeah. definitely, <laughs> absolutely. But um, oh, I mentioned I'm going to be in uh, uh, Dulles tomorrow in Washington, Virginia, actually, to be exact. And uh, I mentioned this on the last show, and uh, just wanted to remind everybody again. By the time you're hearing this, um, it, it'll be history. But if you're watching, if you're with us live right now um and if you're in the wash well in the pennsylvania area uh you might want to make plans to join becky sailor and robert fairbairn and i and hopefully others uh at the uh, flight 93 memorial in shanksville pennsylvania and uh information about that if you need information about that you should probably go to slack join that slack group and uh, you'll get more information there and contact information, et cetera. If you uh, need the uh, information right away and you're not on Slack, just send me an email, either jeff at airlinepilotguy.com or feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. And then uh, I can get you in touch with uh, Becky, who is basically organizing the whole thing. And uh, uh, the plan is for Robert to pick me up from my hotel in Fairfax, Virginia, drive to a local airport where he flies general aviation and we're going to fly in an airplane and head down to uh, an airport close to shanksville and then we're going to meet up with becky and whoever else is out there and uh, a ranger from the uh, flight 93 memorial park and uh, get a little uh, uh, tour and um, yeah and then just have a a meetup so that's the plan that should be good 
Yeah, we're looking, and I got a uh, a message from Robert, um, not even an hour ago, I believe, that said uh, he was looking at the weather and it said it looks like it's shaping up pretty nicely for okay. our GA flight. The backup plan is if the weather is not good, uh, then we'll drive. Yeah. So it's like a one-hour so, flight as opposed to a three-hour drive. a long drive. drive. Yeah. Yeah. So. so hopefully the weather holds out. I mean, this time of year is always a little questionable with the thunderstorms in the afternoon. It's been really hot and humid. So yeah, but good. glad the weather looks better. Yeah. And then uh, just a reminder again, later in this month on the 19th in Columbus, Ohio, uh, probably a, a mini meetup and then uh, a, a longer, uh, more full blown meetup in St. Louis on the 20th. And uh, yeah, so update on meetups uh, mentioned also last time that uh, Tiffany is uh, our librarian yes. and uh, belly dancer. Um, and you, you think I'm joking? Not. I'm not. Uh, she uh, is putting together an aviation reading list, and uh, we're still working on that. I haven't really had time to uh, to create the page on a, on the website and such. But uh, just as soon as we have that up and running, we'll let you know. Good stuff. Very good. Looking forward to it. I know there were a lot of good suggestions that made it to her already. So yeah, interesting. Interested to see the list. Good meaty stuff. I always say I'm going to do more reading. And then I don't. I know. That's hard you know, to find I, time to do anything. Well, and I'll, you know, I'll open a book right before I go to sleep. But unless it really captivates me, I read about three pages. And then I'm awoken by the book hitting me in the head. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh. That's like listening to podcasts. Uh, yeah, same as thing. As you go I, to sleep. Yeah. Mm. You get through about, you know, six minutes of a podcast. And, oh, no. Oh. Hello. Yeah, yeah, I'm here. You're still there? I'm still here. Okay. It was great. No. You were you were leaning over and you froze stuck in the leaned over <laughs> position. <laughs> okay, our first little blip. Yes. Um. Anyway, I think we'll make it through. Okay. On uh, so Wednesday of last week we did our show, and then on um, Friday we uh, I got <laughs> that, to do. Is that helping you remember? <laughs> I was just looking. I, I my uh, where did I my, put that piece of information? I started my twenty. My Bose twenty, uh, the headband goes over in the middle of my head, and then I just I was looking at my image in the uh, video, and it looked like I had it like part of my part of my hair was sticking up back there. So, I, and then I thought to myself, well, that looks probably pretty stupid. <laughs> Me on the video hitting my head like I'm rubbing my tongue tummy and hitting my patting just my head. Just because you're talented. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, so on Friday, I was asked to uh, be one of the hosts on the PTUK, the Plain Talking UK podcast, and had a blast. It was a lot of fun being with Nev and Matt. So if you haven't already done so, and I'm sure that if you're listening to this show, most of you have already uh, subscribed to the Plain Talking UK podcast, but uh, check it out. That was a lot of fun. And thank you to Matt and to Nev and Carlos for inviting me to be on the show. It was a lot of fun. Excellent. And that is all I have on my list of things to talk about. Do we have anything else to talk about uh, administratively or meetuply? I don't have any meetup stuff going on for the f- near future. Um, I don't think I have much else to, to add. How's the, how's the Jeep? The Jeep is good. I, I uh, had the uh, doors off of it for quite a while because we had a little stretch of better weather. And then yesterday... Um, 
So I did go out to go furniture shopping. I looked at the radar before I left and I said, uh, it's going to be potentially soggy. So we put the, put the doors back on, put the roof back on. And then I managed to avoid all the thunderstorms, of course. Yeah. Well, that's Murphy's that's law. Exactly. But if you had not done that. Stuff, no, I would, I probably would have purchased, like actually had furniture in the back of the car and then it would have been, I didn't do that either. They're delivering everything that I bought. Oh. So, but what would have happened if I had not put the top on the car is it would have had it in stock and I would have just taken it with me and then it would have poured rain and then I would have been very unhappy. Exactly. Yeah. So. so that worked out. <laughs> okay, great. And well, if that's it, let's move on to the coffee fund. And of course, we do that by bringing in Jeff Smith and him singing the Java Jive. Yeah, me too. Johnny, how much more coffee? No, thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. The Coffee Fund is your way to support our show if you have the financial resources to do so. As we always say, if you need the money for food, for shelter, for clothing, or most importantly, for flying, well, don't send it to us. Spend it on yourself. But if you have some extra cash just laying around, please consider joining the Coffee Fund cadre. And since the last show, the Classic Fund contributor of the week is Chung Young Xiao. So hopefully I got close to the proper pronunciation of your name, sir. Thank you for your contribution. And uh, the other way to do it is to become a patron of the show via Patreon. And we have a new producer. Doug Wall has joined us as a producer on Patreon. So thank you very much for joining the Coffee Fun Cadre, both of you. If you want more information about how you can join as well, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did, and we will too. Stand by for news. I'm gonna. Ha- I want you to start us off. Oh, okay. I can do that. <laughs> That's why I was pointing. Oh, I'm sorry. I was not sure what you. Of <laughs> course, were... I got to type something to you. That, that, that was might have way been I could have communicated. Anyway. Yeah, or written, we, written we a have, note. We have several methods of communication here that are more direct. The nonverbal did not work. No, I was not sure what you were. Uh, okay. Yeah. You were, you were just pointing like off to the left of my screen. I, know. I was I like was pointing to you because that's where you are right oh, there. Okay. But okay. then the cam- then I went, oh, wait, no, the camera's right there. Right there. Yeah. Okay. Right. So anyway, the news. So this is from Fox News. It's the Utah Department of Wildlife drops fish from plane for extreme restocking, in quotes, of lake. Um, 
So in Utah, extreme fish stocking is often done via airplane flying over remote mountain lakes. It's not that uncommon uh, to rain cats and dogs. <laughs> but have you ever seen it rain fish? Uh, dozens of tiny trout fell from the sky in Utah, dropping from a plane into the crystal blue mountain lake below as part of the area's uh, fish stocking efforts. I like that they keep calling it extreme fish stocking. I don't know. It sounds like, uh, I don't know, like a, a reality TV show or something. Um uh, the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources posted a short video of the bizarre practice on Twitter last week, which shows the fish raining down from the aircraft's underbelly in a gush of water. While the steep fall might look deadly, turns out that 95% of the fish survived the plummet thanks to their small size of about one to three inches, according to officials. I feel kind of bad for the other 5%, but oh well. Um, so typically, fish stocking is mostly done by trucks with holding tanks that carry the fish to a lake or stream where they are then dumped into the water via pipes. In centuries past, horses were used to pack in metal milk cans filled with fish and water to more remote areas. But by the 1950s, small airplanes became the preferred method, one that is still utilized today. Fish rained down from the sky in northern Mexico last year, though this instance wasn't inter intentional. Small fish accompanied a light rain in Tampico in September. I don't know how that happens. Is that like Sharknado? Um, yes, exactly. I think okay. that's probably where they got the idea. <laughs> uh, according to the U.S. Library of Congress, it's a phenomenon that has been repeated or reported since ancient times. Scientists believe that tornadoes over water, known as water spouts, could be responsible for sucking fish into the air where they are blown around until being released to the ground. But, Sharknado. No, Sharknado. Nado. I know. But no, the, um, I knew that they did this in Utah. They did, they've been doing it for a long time, as they said in the article. Um, they have these high mountain uh, reservoirs that they stock with fish for uh, fishing purposes. So it's kind okay. of a unique way of getting all the fish into the, the reservoirs. That reminds me, um, uh, we were talking about unusual bird strikes or bird thing strikes. You imagine flying and having a fish at your... Uh, yeah, there was like a flying fish and uh, it turns out that uh, the a, an airplane hit a, a, a fish in the air because I think an eagle or some kind of large bird uh, had dropped the it. fish yeah, dropped it out of its mouth or its beak. Oops. I guess it's, they don't really have mouths. Um, and uh, yeah, and then the airplane hit it. You know, what are the chances of that? Something to write up. What happened yeah. on your flight today? Uh, well, we hit a fish. A fish strike. Fish strike. Yeah. Trying to find the fish strike uh, paperwork. Yeah. So this brings new meaning to the term fish finder. Yeah. Got him on the fish finder. Good point. I always love people when they say that. They say that. It's not annoying yeah. at all. I got it? it on the fish finder. Mm -hmm. <sighs> Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> don't And if you're that. one of those people that do it. Don't. I'm just kidding. But I don't, don't mind. Seriously, don't. don't. But don't. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I should probably play. I haven't played that in a while because it's just one of my. Ooh, Jeff's pet peeve. Nope. That's singular. Ooh, Jeff's pet peeves. Yeah. Thank there you. you. Go. Okay. So it's kind of a fun, lighthearted story uh, to start things off with. If you didn't yeah. know that it, that existed in the world, it uh, it does. If you're ever at a high mountain reservoir lake and you're wondering how all those fish got in there probably because that's how yep. airplanes yeah all right moving on to d a disturbing photo and a leaky can of pepper spray ruined this flight to hawaii hawaii hawaiian airlines flight 23 en route to maui began with an alarming photo and ended with a stench that led to an emergency landing 
This is from CNN. Passengers boarded the fright, the fright, the flight Friday morning from Oakland International to Maui's Kahului Airport. Kahului, yeah. Kahului. The plane was supposed to take off at 7 a.m., but it was brought back to the gate because a 15-year-old girl accidentally airdropped a picture of a fake crime scene to passengers, according to CNN affiliate KGO TV. The picture showed a mannequin face down on the ground surrounded by crime scene numerical markers. Sergeant Ray Kelly with the Alameda County Sheriff's Office told KGO about 15 passengers viewed the photo and believed that the picture was threatening. It was found that the girl was just trying to airdrop the photo to her mom, but because she airdropped using Bluetooth, I think that's the only way you can airdrop is via Bluetooth. People in range of her phone had the option of accepting and viewing the photo. Yeah, but she must have tagged all of them because usually you just select yeah. the person that you want. So sounds like this girl doesn't really know how to use the airdrop feature of her phone. But yeah, also, thought, if someone's sending you a photo and you don't know who it is, do you do accept it. that? No. Because that's actually happened to me once before. It's like so-and-so is sending you a photo and I'm like... I don't know who that is. They didn't tell me they were going to send me a photo. And they're definitely like within, you know, but it was clearly just an error. You know, it was a gathering yeah. of people. But, yeah. But no. you know, you may just tap on it and then just see, you know, something you really don't want to see. Well, that too. You don't know what someone's trying to send you. Yeah. So that's just a warning to all of you out there. If you see something coming from me, airdropping. Don't open, don't open any pictures from Jeff. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. The, the young girl was very embarrassed, Kelly told KGO. She was upset. We explained to her she was not in trouble and there was no crime that was committed. Flight 23 was ultimately delayed for nearly an hour because of that mishap. But the craziness didn't end there. Uh-uh. As the Boeing 767 was airborne, passengers seated near the front of the plane told the flight crew they smelled something unpleasant, according to a statement from Hawaiian Airlines. Being cautious, the airline said the flight crew declared an emergency so that they they could get emergent or priority handling once they landed in Hawaii. The 12 affected guests tempor- temporarily were moved to seats further back in the plane and went back to their original seats once the smell had dissipated. It turns out the smell was from a can of pepper spray that a passenger brought aboard the plane illegally that accidentally discharged. Pepper spray is prohibited on planes and carry on bags, according to the TSA. So apparently the TSA, uh, they did their job. Yeah. Caught Mm. that pepper spray. Yeah. They didn't do their job. Anyway, first responders treated the 12 passengers and three flight attendants for respiratory issues. All were released. The airline said, uh, let's see. Flight 23 had a somewhat happy ending though. Besides an apology, The airline said all 256 passengers were given a $500 travel credit. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's nice. It's fine by me. Next time someone wants to accidentally let their pepper spray uh, thing go by, I'll be happy to collect $500 for my. I I can see her now. She's planning on bringing one on and then, you know, planting it in somebody else's (laughs) luggage. No, I would definitely get caught. I'm not that smooth. (laughs) (laughs) Um. And uh, finally, uh, this is pretty good. A reporter on Boston 25 News covering a local plane crash reported the remarks by a local man attributing the cause of the crash to a faulty part. You'll never believe what that part was. The crash took place after a Cessna 182 had dropped skydivers and returned to Cranlin Airport near Boston. The plane overran the runway and flipped over 
after hitting a ditch. The 20-year-old pilot was taken to the hospital with minor injuries. The FAA is investigating. We have uh, some audio from the reporter, and uh, she'll tell us what uh, they think might have caused this accident. With the airport and with the manager, and, and again, as I've said, we've really never had any problems. Um, they've been, the airport's run very well. And Hazelden told us that he believes the issue was with a defective flux capacitator, though the NTSB wouldn't comment on any potential cause today. Go Skydive Boston didn't respond to a written request for comment. We're live in Hanson. I'm Catherine Burcham, Boston 25 News. I could just see the written request for comment. Could you please tell us a little bit more about the flux capacitator on the aircraft that was involved in the incident? <laughs> well, you know, I think the FAA is going to, you know, that's that's evidence right there. So I'm sure that'll be part of their investigation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, she got so, pranked. Well, she may be the only person I know of in the world who is at least not familiar with the movie Back to the Future. Oh, I'm sure there are others, but there, yeah. There may not, very well be, but. Not too many others, but. No. Uh, yeah. And even if you haven't seen the movie, I feel like Flex Capacitor is out yeah. there in the, you know. Sounds like something made up, doesn't it? it does, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Okay. Does your aircraft have a Flex Capacitor? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. I don't remember that in our, um, in it's our. in your manuals or your. Systems. Systems. Uh, information. Okay. Maybe there is one. And they just haven't told us because they don't want us to be messing with that Mm. thing. Okay. As uh, Liz says, aviation is so mysterious. It is. It is. You know, if they'd only had 1.21 gigawatts, they would not have, of electricity, they would not have had. uh, Gigawatts. Gigawatts. I'm sorry. Gigawatts. Come on. I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) We all know that's the way you pronounce it. Gigawatts. Gigawatts. Gigawatts is correct. Gigawatts is the way they say it in the movie. I think. Yeah. Okay. Wow. <laughs> All right. With that, it's now time for Steph and I to move on to an amusing and entertaining and informative part of the show. Not the best, though. <laughs> Captain, incoming message. Well, I'll start off with this first one, item one. Ed sends us this feedback good day apg crew hope you all enjoyed your trip to farmbra making all of us uh that could not attend green with envy i am reading faithfully my monthly installment of aopa flight training magazine when i stopped at the article by amelia walsh titled aopa high school curriculum is ready more than 70 schools to implement ninth grade program oh boy do i wish i was back in school And my school had this opportunity. And then he gives us a link. With the growing decline in pilots, I love the fact that high schools are getting involved in making aviation, not only pilot careers, part of the career development choices. As a longtime pilot wannabe and a plane spotter, I support any possibility and option to help build out this wonderful industry. There is no doubt about it. The aviation industry will have a shortage in the near future. I am referring to the industry in a wider scope, not only pilots, as I believe the industry as a whole is going to suffer. We so often look at the pilots. No, sorry. Dream of the pilots. Wow, that came out weird. <laughs> yeah, it did, Ed. Um, okay. Uh, we'll just we'll just uh, pass that one by. Just and let it move go. On. Yeah, yeah. 
And uh, forget about the great people and support of the pilots and crew with blue collar jobs in general being impacted by the new generation. I believe the industry has a challenge at hand. Fewer and fewer youngsters are looking to go uh, to go into jobs that are considered blue collar. As a result, colleges and training institutions are no help either by pushing the digital age and soft hands forward. That may seem a bit odd since technology is my bread and butter. However, technology is at the end of the day just a tool and should be used as such. Here, here, I agree. Making technology and wonders of it part of jobs where airplane panels are repaired, rebuilt, renewed, so that vintage beauty is not equipped with the latest geek tools is a unique career by itself, just as one example out of thousands. Yet, that is not pushed or educated to our youngsters. We take them to Lego camps over summer break, spending hundreds of dollars to keep them occupied with Lego. Yet, when we have an opportunity to educate our high schoolers to find a career where they can build, play a different kind of Lego daily, we uh, fail to educate them on it. As always, thank you for the best podcast out there. Ooh, well, thank you. All right. Yeah. We'll take it. Without you, my daily three-hour commute would be H-E double hockey sticks. (laughs) He didn't say that. It would be hell. With you educating us, even with a 50% accuracy rating, any commute and bumper-to-bumper Silicon Valley traffic becomes a faded memory. Tailwinds, blue skies, and lots of IPAs. Ed Juiced. Oh, Ed. Hey, how you doing? Met you uh, at the meetup that we had. I don't remember the name of the fault line, I think. Fault line brewery in um, Mountain View, I believe. Ed was part of that group. He's in Livermore. Thank you for the feedback, sir. Uh, P.S. On episode 332, I had a bit of a chuckle at your pronunciations related to Pretoria and Wonderboom. Both of these are very typical Afrikaans, my first native language from South Africa words. Pretoria in particular used to be extremely used. In particular, used to be extremely Afrikaans and Wonderboom AFB, a main landmark just outside of the Voortrekker Monument. Uh, Here's a very metallic voice version of it. Uh, Okay, so I didn't set that up. So let me uh, copy this and paste it into the uh, browser window. Where is where are you, browser? Oh, here he is. And uh, let's see what happens. We're waiting for the very metallic yes. voice to. Wonderboom. Huh? Wonderboom. Ooh. Oh, that metallic <laughs> voice. <laughs> Let me try that one again. I was like, the first one's Wonderboom. 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 Is that the way they talk over there in uh, South Africa? Wonderboom. In the metallic also, uh, robotic is, voice? They all sound like robots? Yes. Huh. Interesting. I, I didn't know that. I learned something today. Yeah, I didn't either. All right, Ed. Thanks for that. And uh, thanks for being there for us. And uh, we really appreciate your commentary. And we and well, I can only speak for myself, but I agree completely that uh, we need to definitely emphasize the uh, all the jobs that are in the aviation industry, even those that aren't, you know, super technological, because we we need people, yep. humans still. In this world, exactly. I think like most uh, most professions out there, there's a large amount of people who are not maybe at the very forefront that you don't see. Uh, you know, they're not the face of the profession, but are definitely needed and important and vital parts of the operation to keep things going. So, 
lots of yep. lots of options out there. Parts is parts. Yeah. <laughs> All right, number two. This one uh, was sent to us by Liz. It comes from the BBC, and it's about the uh, kind of going along with uh, encouraging uh, folks to get into aviation. The Brownies launch a badge for future pilots. Um, so this one is, uh, like I said, from the BBC. They call it Girl Guiding Group Brownies here in the U.S. It's part of the Girl Scouts. I assume it's similar around the world. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but they've launched, launched an aviation badge as a part of a campaign to encourage more women to become pilots. To earn the badge, brownies will have to perform uh, aeronautical experiments and name 40 things that can fly. That sounds very familiar, having been part of Girl Scouts in the past. A lot of these badges, it was like a lot of, there was homework related to it, and you had to you know, learn a little bit about uh, you know, what, what would be required, or, or um, I guess, affiliated types of things as well. So at present, uh, women account for around, they say, 3% of commercial airline pilots worldwide. I think it's probably closer to 5% from what I've seen recently. Um, or actually, I think in the last show, there was a f- uh, figure uh, 7%. I 7%. I think that's yeah. a little on the high side. I Might be. Think, okay. yeah. I think at Somewhere Acme, it's 6. 6, yeah. I mean, there's definitely certain airlines that are, um, where the percentage is higher. Um, but either way, either way, it's a low percentage comparatively, uh, less than 10%, certainly. So, uh, pilot and former Brownie Kate McWilliams said the plan was to engage girls in a pilot career from an early age, adding it was a fantastic job. Uh, so, EasyJet, uh, which is part of this campaign, wants 20% of its new entrant pilots to be female by 2020. Their figure was 6% in September 2015 and 12% a year later. Uh, the new award is one of 117 badges available to Brownies, which is made up of girls between uh, ages 7 and 10. So, there you go. And the brownies is uh, like the the entry uh, here, level for Girl Scouts, right? Oh yeah, I think they're. I want to say there's daisies here in the U.S., which is even before brownies. Oh, it's like daisies, brownies, Girl Scouts. I forget after that because that's as far as I made it in Girl Scouts. <laughs> it was like fourth grade, but yeah, I I, uh, I made it to um, Tenderfoot and the Boy I made Scouts. I through a couple seasons of selling Girl Scout <laughs> cookies and decided I was not very good at that and. It always seemed to be in the winter in Chicago, and I can remember standing out in like front of grocery stores and selling Girl Scout cookies in horribly cold weather. The cookies are good; like I enjoy eating them. But oh, I enjoy. I was not much of a good for sure salesperson for the cookies. Micah says he was a Cub Scout. Uh, I was a Cub Scout, Micah. I was a uh, wee below. I think that's kind of the in between Cub mm-hmm. Scouts and Boy Scouts, and then I was a Boy Scout. And I think the very starting level is Tenderfoot. And uh, gotcha. I never, my, my feet never roughed up. That's as far as I got. But I can remember we did all kinds of um, science related stuff too, even back, back then, you know, 20 plus years ago. So STEM, I know the Girl Scouts and Brownies do a, do a good job of that for, for these young ladies. It would be very important for the daisies to do STEM. Well, that's Get more it? to do with biology. No, and, like <laughs> I'm just daisies but again, it's, it's, it's yeah, STEM. Okay. Still science. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's see. Shall we do number three? Sure. I think uh, Liz did send us some sort of message to tell us how we're doing here. She said... Uh, One hour left. Oh, good. That was eight minutes ago, so okay. we have 50 minutes left. Excellent. So we'll press on with uh, Texas Charlie. He sent us a link to this article, uh, the title of which, let's see, where is this from? Um, Forbes.com. This guy hacked hundreds of planes from the ground. Now, you see that headline and you go, 
oh, they hacked. He hacked hundreds of planes from the ground. You know, he had control of the airplanes. He could, he could manipulate quite. them and do whatever he wanted with the no, scary, no, scary thing like scary. that. Throughout, throughout November and December of last year, Ruben Santa Marta sat in front of his computer, peeking inside the technical bowels of hundreds of aircraft flying thousands of meters above him. Hmm. Yeah. That included commercial aircraft operated by some of the biggest airlines in the world. He believes it may have been the first time anyone had hacked planes from the ground by taking advantage of weaknesses in satellite equipment. The cybersecurity researcher could, if he had been so inclined to break the law, have hacked those onboard systems, snooped on the onboard Wi-Fi, and carried out surveillance on all connected passenger devices. Fortunately, the safety systems on the planes were not at risk, thanks to the ways in which modern aircraft segment networks. There you go. Santa Marta, a research at cybersecurity company IO Active, was able to spy on all those planes due to vulnerabilities in satellite communications equipment, such as antennas sending data up to aircraft and the modems within. Hi, Taco. Sorry. Um, That's right. Um, hmm. All could be exploited remotely without needing physical access to the hardware. In his words, Santa Marta found various ways to turn satellite communications in uh, turn satellite communications kit into quote radio frequency weapons. He isn't saying just what the equipment, uh, just what equipment until he details his attacks in full at the Black Hat conference in Las Vegas on Thursday. I think it's already over the Black Hat conference. Um, Forbes is aware the affected technology will update this article once Santa Marta has given his talk. Relevant airlines, satellite communications vendors, and government agencies were contacted about the vulnerabilities. Most have fixed the problems uncovered by Santa Marta. Some remain vulnerable. Among the various airlines that had aircraft containing vulnerable kit were Southwest and Norwegian Airlines. I think the person that wrote this must be British, using that word kit there a lot. Kits, kits. Uh, Southwest and Norwegian Airlines, according to the researcher. At the time of publication, Norwegian hadn't commented on his findings. A Southwest spokesperson said it learned of the issues via the U.S. CERT, an emergency response team sponsored by the U.S. government, and contacted its Wi-Fi partners, Global Eagle, which fixed the issues back in December. They reiterated there was no threat to flyer safety. Um, interesting. I'm going to um, scroll down a little bit further into the uh, article here. We'll have the full article link in the show notes. Uh, the weaknesses in SATCOM kit also allowed Santa Marta to spy on cargo ships and uncover supposedly hidden military bases. When he spoke with Forbes in mid-July, a number of those bases hadn't yet cloaked themselves. Another severe threat is that of radio frequency attacks that could cause physical harm to individuals and electronics. Satellite communications technology can transfer energy via radio frequencies. Santa Marta hypothesized it should be possible to cause some kind of physical damage to systems by applying that energy to specific parts of an aircraft or ship. It may, be, it may even be possible to cause physical burns to a person if the RF energy was powerful enough, though IOActive decided not to test that hypothesis. Well, thank that goodness. Seems, that well, seems you know, a little it's funny. I don't, yeah, far-fetched. I mean, types of radio frequencies that they're using for satellite communication is a little different than what we use that we do actually in um, 
some of the treatments that I do, we have something called radiofrequency ablation, which does use um, radio energy basically to heat up a probe tip, a needle probe tip to make a burn across tissue to disrupt nerve fibers and things like that. But it does it in a very, I mean, we're talking like, you know, a millimeter, <laughs> millimeters of size, not anything that's on a grand scale, like bouncing between satellites or anything like that. So if you put that on your, on your skin, well, it heats to about burn? 90 degrees centigrade. So yeah. Oh, centigrade. Yeah, that's yeah. high. Mm-hmm. That would burn. Mm-hmm. That might hurt. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, if you want to read more about this uh, guy and his uh, story of hacking hacking hundreds of planes from the ground, uh, it'll be in the show notes. Thank you. I'm, I'm really unclear as to what he actually did. He just like spied on their Wi-Fi I th- systems? I think that he could just see the, uh, like the were, Wi-Fi system and see and who, the was and who was connected. And who was connected. Yeah. So he, he he could see Dr. Steph's, you know, iPad and yeah. your phone. Okay. Yeah. Not really. <laughs> now that when you, when you read the whole thing out, you go, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. isn't really that exciting, is it? You know, it's interesting. People do stuff like that and then they say, oh, I was able to do this as a way to like expose weaknesses in systems. And I suppose that's a good thing to know about. You don't want to have those weaknesses, but it's always strange the way they do it, you know, kind of on their own clandestine and then it's like, Ooh, look what I was able to do. You know, it's yeah. a big uh, news event. I just find it odd. Yeah, I, I do too. But you know, with this world that we're, you know, how many hundreds or thousands of uh, news sources and uh, channels and constant 24 seven news reporting, you know, you, you got to have something for all hours of the day. Got to talk about something. Gotta talk about something. All right. Uh, Let's see. Deanna um, says, I've been listening for the past month or so and decided to support you on an ongoing basis. She is a patron. I think we mentioned her on the last episode uh, or the one before that. I've uh, taken a couple of flying lessons, but sadly don't have the time to devote to becoming proficient due to uh, demands of my job as a veterinarian. I think about it constantly, though. We have never again moments in medicine, too. Most of us have gotten into a situation in surgery that we thought we could handle, but ended up wishing we'd never started. Fortunately, it usually turns out okay if you don't panic. Helps to have a colleague to consult us, too. Yep. I completely agree with, with all of that that she said. I mean, you know, it, uh, it, there are certain professions out there where you don't want to get into those never again moments where the uh, outcomes perhaps are a little bit more critical, certainly, if you're you know, working, operating on a, a live animal, a cat, a dog, or a person, or you're flying an aircraft filled with uh, lots and lots of people. Um, you definitely don't want to get yourself into um, sticky situations, but good learning experience is always. And like she said, if you, if you don't panic and you can think through things clearly and logically, then a lot of times you can see your way to the solution. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Deanna. And uh, welcome. Thank you for joining the Coffee Fund Cadre. We do appreciate it. Really do. Uh, let's see. Would you like to uh, take six? Sure. Oh, mine's refreshing. Give me half a second. It'll sure. Be back. Okay. This is from Jared. Um, he says, hello, APG crew. Jared from Duluth, Georgia here. Uh, first, thank you for all for an incredible podcast. The syndrome is real, and I'm happy to... Uh, avoid the needed medication in this season when I'm unable to fly as much as I used to. Oh, you know what? 
the you know we haven't done this in a while the mm. uh, the uh, medication that is not yes. FDA approved I no. should right out front uh, up front say it's in, it's in trials I think clinical trials it right is now. but and uh, I may have helped some people I'm not sure but you might want to check this out why hello there my name is Miami Hick and I'm here to talk to you today about an embarrassing subject that no one likes to talk about APG syndrome do you have a constant pain in your neck from always looking up at airplanes? Have you tried to grow your own Captain Jeff mustache? Do you think of Miami Rick every time you hear a cricket? Think of Captain Nick when you hear a frog croak. Think of Dana whenever you eat Boston baked beans. Do you think of Dr. Steph whenever you get stuck with a needle? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you are suffering from APG syndrome. We'll suffer no more. Introducing Go Around the Cillin. With only 36 daily doses of an easy to swallow pill, you can be free of your symptoms with Go Around the Cillin. Talk to your doctor today and find out if Go Around the Cillin is right for you. Like all medicine, Go Around the Cillin has side effects which include headache, nausea, vomiting, stomach bleeding, bleeding from the ears, nose, and eyes, uncontrolled diarrhea, stomach cramps, yellowing of the teeth, hair, and toenails, warts, hair loss, dry mouth, constipation, and stomach cramps. But it's worth it. And I mean, 36, 36 easy daily doses. <laughs> easy easy doses. to swallow daily doses. Every day. <laughs> okay. They have a lot, a long way to go, but uh, that might be something uh, you might want to check out. Nice Jared. nice to hear Miami Hick. We, we yes, miss him around here. We do. <laughs> okay. Continue. All right. Um, secondly, to Captain Jeff, I'm very glad you got to enjoy our little downtown recently. I guess you were in Duluth, Georgia recently. Yeah, if I had a little meetup. Oh, yeah. good. If you get to come around again, I highly recommend yeah, Dreamland Barbecue or... What was it called? Pure Takaria. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I keep interrupting. What was that? Sorry. I missed it. Uh, we having some issues again? Yeah, um, that's fine. Uh, yeah. Dreamland. Oh, you haven't Dreamland read that Barbecue part yet. or... O4W pizza? For yeah, I saw the O4W pizza. I saw both of them. And actually, um, there's a Dreamland barbecue like really close to where I live. In fact, sometimes I drive by and I can smell the uh, wonderful hickory mm. smoke. And it always makes my stomach go, mmm, growl. Uh, anyway, yeah, we have one very close by in Roswell. Sounds okay, lovely. continue stuff. Anyway, I wanted to hear all of your thoughts on this piece I found this morning. Uh, this was on August 13th, 2018 from CBS. It appears as though the pilot here experienced some sort of component failure, engine I'd guess, and attempted an off-field landing. Unfortunately, the pilot perished as the plane crashed during the attempted landing. My thoughts and prayers go out to the pilot's family. What I wanted to focus on, though, was an error in the report that I think highlights a huge issue in our media today when it comes to reporting aviation incidents. Assuming that they don't correct the piece before you see this, the second paragraph reads, LAFD says there were no other injuries and no damage to any structures from the Beechcraft A320 aircraft. Uh, it's no secret that an A320 is not a single-engine GA aircraft. The plane involved was an A36 Bonanza. Now, I know typos get made in the age of instant reporting. However, the entire article only has a whopping 153 words. Maybe I'm nitpicking, but I feel like some care for accuracy is due in situations like this. So this brings up two questions that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. The first, is there anything that the pilot community can do to somehow, quote, fix or at least mitigate the effects of the issue of subpar reporting on aviation incidents? Secondly, I feel as though the sensational reporting we see with aviation incidents could be driving people away from the industry, furthering, to some degree, the already terrible pilot shortage we have. So, 
where is the line on reporting accidents where we can maintain respect for the dangers that exist while also not driving away those who might be interested in flying. Thanks a ton, Tailwinds, Jared. Uh, and then he does include the, uh, this is a very brief article about this unfortunate accident in Los Angeles. Um, but it was uh, basically, as he said, a single engine uh, Bonanza A36 aircraft um, that, uh, let's see, it crashed uh, in a field, I guess, on, on approach. Um, but yeah, the, the second paragraph still reads, at least as it was copied and pasted here, the LA Fire Department says there were no other injuries and no damage to any structures from the Beechcraft A320 aircraft. So, Well, a lot of people don't realize that Beechcraft bought the rights to manufacture that airplane now. No, wait, wait a minute. They didn't. To Just manufacture the A320? The A320. <laughs> not the other way around. It's not going to be Airbus manufacturing the, the Beechcraft. Yeah. The Beech Bear. You didn't hear that? You Bonanza. didn't see that in the news? Huh. No. Okay. I missed that one. So, Steph, what do we do? I mean, what is it we can do to help all these poor journalists that can't seem to get a grasp on aviation? You know, I think it's the uh, we got to just keep up with the grassroots efforts that we're all doing these days. You know, when you've come across those uh, sensational headlines, those uh, articles with gross inaccuracies, because uh, a lot of times now they're linked to social media things. So you'll see them embedded in a tweet or a Facebook page, and you can usually get back to either the uh, source paper or even the author sometimes and say, uh, hey, did you realize that you did this? Because that's not correct. And, um, you know, it's, it's always amusing to go through and read comments on, on articles these days because pretty much any media that's published online will have a section for comments at the end. So if there's a lot of sensational sensationalized information within the article content itself, you'll get all kinds of comments from people ranging from continuing the sensationalism because they don't have a significant amount of knowledge to people who are really trying to be a little bit more factual about things and say, well, look, this is probably really what happened and what needs to be reported in the meat of it. And, you know, this is why it's maybe not as scary or intense as it's being made to made out to be. Yeah. But I don't think anything is going to stop them from continuing to publish this drivel because like Jeff was saying earlier, you know, it's 24-hour news and there's huge pressure on these guys to get something out immediately. And uh, unfortunately, when you're publishing for sake of quantity and not quality, some of that uh, fact-checking and editing and other important things uh, kind of go out the window. By the wayside yeah. or out the window, yeah. Um and, you know, in a way, I kind of have to sympathize a little bit with, you know, today's journalist um, when you're covering a story on a subject that you know nothing about. Um, you know, it can uh, I mean, that's like me going out there and covering a story on, you know, beekeeping or something. I don't know anything about it. Um, I I may uh, get some information from someone who's pranking me or I may. You know, flux put, capacitor. Yeah, like a flux I'm capacitor. Sure bees have flux capacitors. Yeah, well, they, well, they may actually. <laughs> anyway, so, um, but it still irritates those of us who do know what's right and wrong and know something about the subject. But as we said before, it makes you wonder if you see all these errors in, let's say, aviation, something we know about, or medicine, Doctor Steph. Um, oh, it's rampant there too. It's great. And you got, and I'm thinking that it's got to be the same with uh, law. You know, sure. yeah. we are always anything that's, anything that's specialized, anything that's not a, you know, common knowledge uh, 
general topic is going to be prone to these same types of errors because yeah. of lack of um, subspecialty knowledge by the person who's writing about it. But you'd think that they'd have somebody on staff that, yeah, hey, if you write a story about aviation, uh, Ben knows something about aviation. He's a private pilot. Why don't you just, you know, pass it by him first before you go to press on it? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, whatever. Yeah, Doesn't you know, and I don't know so much that this is um, contributing to the pilot shortage. Um, I, I think people who are still interested in being pilots are not going, they're, they're going to fall in the same category as us where they can read through the sensationalism and misinformation that's in a lot of these articles and it's not going to deter them from becoming a pilot. I think that's other factors yeah. entirely money, mostly. Um, Men, yeah. Mostly money. Um, I had another point to make about that too. And now I've, yeah, it was a good one. It was, it was, um, well, just never know what it was. You know, actually, I, I do know what it was. I'm sorry. Oh. I, I think the, I think the lay persons, lay people out there who read these articles and um, don't have our, you know, depth of knowledge or at least interest in the subject material are the ones who are affected the most by the sensational reporting. And I think you see that a lot in some of the um, people who are nervous flyers on aircraft. Um, and I think it goes a long way if, if someone really does seem nervous or, you know, really anxious to, you know, ask them if you can explain anything to them or tell them about what's going on because that little bit of knowledge and, and explaining what's going on really does go a long way for a lot of people. And it doesn't have to be anything super detailed or in depth. It just has to be basics. Yeah. You might completely lose them and they may actually kill themselves if you go into yeah, too much detail. Don't, don't jump into like Miami Rick level, like <laughs> no, that's a mistake. detailed information. <laughs> I mean, maybe, uh, you know, well, you can put them, hey, put them if, to sleep a little bit. If, and, uh, if, if you're new to the uh, podcast and uh, and you didn't quite catch that reference that uh, Steph just made, just tune in to, I don't know, starting around the late 90s, like, uh, early 100s, right? Was no, about no. The, after that, it was like one, uh, 150? 150-ish, okay. 175. Yeah. There. Just look for uh, one of the episodes with Miami Rick in there and uh, you'll, you'll understand. <laughs> and also the reference that to Miami Hick. Okay, you probably don't even know who Miami Hick is. I know, we've dropped all kinds of references oh. in here. Well, you just got to, you know, you just got to go back and listen to all of them. If you don't know what we're talking about, you do not have the APG syndrome. That's right. And, you know, we, we usually don't recommend that people go back and listen to all of the episodes in order because it can be time consuming. Time consuming, definitely. But, um, you know, one or two here or there to get a little flavor of how the show's evolved over time is, yeah. I think. Good. It used to be a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, you're going to see it's a steady decline. Just <laughs> and at this rate, <laughs> and, and it's just speeding up. It's, it's going to be completely blah. <laughs> Very soon. Okay. Uh, thanks, Jared, uh, for your feedback. And uh, moving on, uh, Louisiana Steve. Actually, seven. I think his is a request for Dana. Hold on. Oh, never mind. Uh, oh, let me see. Okay. Yes, well, no, it's not a request, but it, there is something for Dana in there. So let's okay. skip that Well, one. then uh, we'll skip that one then. Which one should we do next, do you think? I've forgotten. Hold on. I'm going through them again. <laughs> I did a lot of prep work for this show. Yeah. Well, you know, we, uh, we tried to get pick uh, feedback items that were pertinent to Steph and I. We could do, we could do the self-upgrade one. Okay. Um, go ahead. Uh, all right. Uh, captains and doctors only one doctor here that i'm aware of 
Listening to the most recent episode uh, and the lady who attempted to self-upgrade reminded me of a little story that I thought I might share. Feel free to use or bin. A couple of years ago, my wife and I flew to Las Vegas with friends to celebrate our first wedding anniversary. A good time was had by all. And four days after out arrival, oh, after our arrival, a rather haggard group of Yorkshire folk gathered at the airport to fly back to Manchester via a connecting flight at London Heathrow. After some time awaiting boarding was, after some time awaiting, comma, boarding was called and our boarding cards were scanned. As we boarded the aged bone shaker, sorry, I mean the Boeing 747, our friends were sent off to the back of the plane. It ain't Boeing, I ain't going. Greeted my wife and I by name and told us to walk this way as she turned to the front of the plane. Somewhat mystified, we followed as I looked at our boarding cards, which said 4D and 4E. Now, at this point, I had no idea what was going on, as I'm sure that I'd remembered those seats being I would have remembered those seats being assigned. As we walked and we arrived in first class, I marveled at the size of the seats, the screens, the lighting. It felt a very different world. Still no idea what was going on. We had no choice but to go with the flow. We arrived at our seats, but alas, someone was in them. The flight attendant joined our confusion and had another look at our boarding cards. Removing them from our passports, as they had been returned to us by the gate agent, she realized that 4D and 4E were, were our seat assignments for our London to Manchester leg. At this point, we were turned around and sent back to the back of the plane to join our friends, where we were able to share the wonders of first class with the thoughts of what could have been. I'm sure the flight attendant thought we were trying it on, but we genuinely had no idea what was going on. Perhaps the most impressive part was how quickly they jumped into first class mode <laughs> and how quickly they jumped they back dismissed. into oh. <laughs> cargo be gone, class. Be gone with you. <laughs> yeah. What are you doing up here? Get out of here. As ever, great podcast. You have created a wonderful community. Keep the blue sky up. Best regards, David Powell. Thank you, David, and for sharing that story. And that's funny uh, how they, oh, oh no, this way, please. And we're going, yeah. oh, oh, okay, I'll, okay. I'll go up there. And then reality. It's all taken away. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, I, you know, I'm sure if this happened to any of us, we'd be thinking, oh, I didn't notice that I got an upgrade. This yeah. is great. This is going to be the best flight ever. I mean, Las Vegas to London, that's a long flight. Um, yeah. Be nice to be up, up front. A little champagne little uh, lie flat seat. Yeah. Steph would be uh, not surprised at all. And this probably happens to her all the time. She gets these <laughs> upgrades constantly. Oh, I'm usually aware of when I get my upgrades because it usually means I've purchased them. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but it is, you know, it's funny how he talks about first class mode. It's, it's a real thing. It's, uh, yeah. And especially with certain airlines, the uh, right level of service definitely goes up several notches as soon as you get to higher the class and it's especially important uh or significant when you are flying those long haul flights really makes a difference oh yeah it makes a big difference to have a um it's just the lie flat seat for me is the the big thing because then i can actually get like restorative sleep yeah i can sleep pretty much on any air aircraft seat but it is nice to lay flat as opposed to like being crammed up you know against the because usually i take a window seat so I'll just lean against the window 
although I never stay there. My head tends to like fall back to the center and then over to the guy sitting next to me. And eventually I start, you know, snoring and drooling a little bit. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'm sure everyone who's ever sat next to me on an airplane has loved the experience. Oh no, they see you. They spot you when they're on the aircraft. Go, oh, <laughs> like, I hope she sit doesn't next sit down next to me. <laughs> <laughs> She's just going to pass out and drool all over the place for the next three hours. <laughs> hope she doesn't take an Ambien again. Right. Oh, I don't even need that. <laughs> okay well let's see i think we can do the next one sent in by colonel jeff okay can we mm. yay or nay yay oh i think so all right serious incident robinson r44 raven 2 4XBCR, or I should say 4X-Ray Bravo Charlie Romeo on the 14th of August, 2018. This is from the Aviation Safety Network. So this is an accident report. Uh, let's see, uh, the 14th of August, around 11 o'clock local time. And we just talked about the uh, aircraft involved, Robinson R-44 helicopter. Uh, let's see, on Tuesday... About 11 o'clock local time, a Robinson R-44 helicopter operated by an ag company, agricultural company, mm -hmm. while spraying an orange field near the city of Petatikwa. <laughs> yeah, Peta sounds great. Petatikwa. And that's in Israel, by the way. Okay. So uh, think about somebody that's Israeli saying that. Okay. Collided with a Phantom 4 drone. The helicopter pilot started his working day at 6.30 local time. At around 7.05, he took off for a couple of spraying missions. And after two shifts cycles for refueling and loading the chemical materials, he took off again for his third and last mission of the day towards an orange field nearby. He started spraying for 20 minutes. At the same time, a uh, UAS pilot licensed who worked for a local building company started his day for mapping an area under construction which was adjacent to the orange field where the helicopter sprayed. Around 11 o'clock local time, we've established that several times, <laughs> while the drone approached one of its site end corners, the drone operator noticed a helicopter maneuvering low and close to the ground, about 30 meters. Immediately, he switched to manual control mode and lowered the drone towards the ground. At the same time, the helicopter pilot noticed a white body at approximately 10 meters on his left side, followed by a bang feeling that the pilot heard from his lower left side of the helicopter. Since the helicopter pilot did not feel any degradation in flying, uh, the, in flying the helicopter, no shakes, no power loss or control problem, he located a nearby landing area and landed normally and safely. At the same time, the drone operator lost communication with the UAS and thought that it had crashed either due to the helicopter's slipstream or due to heavy landing after the initiation of the rapid quick descent order from manual control. After exiting the helicopter, the pilot assessed visually the helicopter, found the UAS jammed and broken into the lattice spray system. After the technical personnel arrived to the scene, they viewed and checked the helicopter and the spraying system and found them airworthy. The helicopter resumed its work and landed safely at its home base. Both operators were working in accordance to the aviation law and by the published regulations. They were properly licensed and adhered to the working altitudes approved and authorized. So here we have a case 
of a an actual collision of a helicopter and a drone. Remember, we talked a few episodes back of we saw the video of one that was a very close call, but I don't mm-hmm. think it was actually a collision. Uh, in this case, it was a collision, and uh, we have the pictures to prove it. And the interesting thing is that both parties were doing everything legally and reasonably, and it just happened to be one of those things where the the big sky theory didn't work. Yeah, I mean, they were both working in, it sounds like, semi-confined areas, you know, so these were adjacent areas. I think the helicopter pilot was in his, what kind of field was it? Agriculture stuff? Orange. Orange field, I think. And then the the area under construction was right next to the orange field. So they were actually in very close proximity. I'm a little surprised. Um, I mean, I guess it just depends on, uh, I mean, I've, I've... I'm not super familiar with how all the agriculture stuff works, but you know, they only have a limited amount of material to spray before they have to go and reload that as well. So oftentimes there'll be a site right adjacent to the fields they're working in where they have their operations set up so that they can just land, reload, um, uh, the, whatever they're spraying, the fertilizer, whatever it is, and then go back out. I wonder how close that was to the construction site, but I also wonder, you know, did the, the drone pilot not realize that this was going on so close. I, I think you would notice a helicopter spraying in a field right next to a construction site. Maybe. You'd think. And you'd, you'd probably think. hear it too, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, if anything else, you'd know that it was, there was something going on nearby. Yeah. So, you know, this is, it, it, you can certainly have accidents where everyone's operating perfectly legally. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you're free from entering into something that's going to cause an accident. So. Good point. Because I mean, you have, you can have, Two aircraft, you know, operating perfectly legally that just end up on collision courses. Yeah, VFR, right? VFR. Yep. See and avoid, but don't manage to see and and avoid. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for sending that story, Daniel. I, uh, excuse me, Colonel Jeff, the uh, the better uh, looking captain. Jeff. Just to just to reiterate, though, this happened at about eleven o'clock. Just it. Uh, yeah. Um. <laughs> I, I don't recall. Did they say? I don't think so. Oh, okay. Someone was asking for clarification in the chat. sarcasm there. Sorry. <laughs> 20 minutes to go, according to Liz. Okay. Um, how about, you want to do this one, number 11? Sure. All right. This is from Daniel. He says, hello, APG crew. I am sure you will talk about the recent Stolen Horizon Airlines plane out of SeaTac Airport, so I won't delve, in, delve too much into it. And yes, we did talk about it. Um, I did not actually miss that episode, too, but you guys covered it in great detail and very good uh, um, insights. Uh, my own experience was as a passenger on a plane that was set to depart around the time the stolen plane was in the air, so the airspace was closed. I was on an Alaska Airlines flight to San Diego, and the flight attendant came over the speaker to let us know that there was an incident, so we were being delayed. A few minutes later, the captain came out of the cockpit and spoke to the flight. He let us know some of what was going on, something like, someone who shouldn't be flying a plane is flying all over the area and the airspace is closed. Uh, But he assured us that since this is an airplane, the guy would be on the ground soon enough one way or another. Here's (laughs) (laughs) one way or another. One way or another. I like the the vague, uh, I I can just (laughs) definitely see this. I mean, you know, when you don't have a lot of information to give, but you have to say something, you end up right. saying things that just don't sound real sensical at the moment. And I can just completely imagine this captain going, uh, someone who really shouldn't be flying is flying all over the place and they close the airspace. That's all we know. Get back to you. Yeah. We appreciate your patience. And thank you for um, flying with us thank today. Thank you for flying with us today. Thank you for flying a lot of airlines. Sit back and relax. Yeah. Uh, so he says, here's my question. Since it was a late-ish flight 
to San Diego, there was concern about meeting the San Diego airport curfew. I lived in San Diego for about 10 years, and the curfew was something I knew about, but not very, but not much. My understanding is that flights can land past the curfew, but they have to pay a fee. The pilot assured us that we would still complete our flight, albeit late, so getting to our destination wasn't a concern. Since our flight was delayed, not by fault, by any fault of the airline, but rather ATC closing the Seattle airspace, would the airline get the fee waived? As always, thanks for the great show and thanks for all you do. Blue skies, etc. Yours, Daniel Simon. He says, P.S. I am currently a student pilot and I fly Cessna 172s out of Kilo Tango India Whiskey, which is Tacoma Narrows Airport. When I recently completed my first solo, I was coming in for my final landing. And to be honest, I wasn't really set up for a good landing, too high and too fast. The part of me that wanted to complete my landing thought about trying it anyway. But at that moment, I seriously heard the You Can Always Go Around song in my head. You can always go around If it don't look right coming down Don't wait until your sight may sliding on the ground You can always go around He says, naturally, I took the song's advice, did a go around, and had a good last landing. My CFI commented that he thought I was going to try for a bad landing, but he was impressed that I chose to do the go around. So extra thanks to your show for imparting good advice that stuck with me. It doesn't happen often, Daniel, but you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Just every now and then, a blind squirrel will find a nut. (laughs) That's that's true. So Uh, what happens here if there's a uh, curfew, but you're uh, delayed beyond your control it's not that you i would just have to hazard a guess because i don't know the real answer to this question but i would imagine that if it were due to things happening beyond the control of the airline and the pilots operating the flight that they would waive that fee but i don't know maybe not i guess they really don't have to no you know and maybe that's just something that you build into your um, operating expenses to know that every once in a while things like that are going to going to happen right and, and you know the, the airline's got to look at uh, okay the cost of paying the fee which is probably a significant fee or the cost of not getting all these passengers to their destination and how much that's going to cost right and that's probably a whole lot more yeah it definitely tips the scale and so either way that it happened um i think they were going to operate that flight no matter what um i don't know how much that fee runs in san diego but i know some airports have some pretty considerable Penalty fees for breaking curfew. Yeah, but yeah, that's, that's what I. That, that's what we think. Maybe and, if uh, there's someone who knows more about what happens in San Diego or at least or other airports that have time or noise curfews, right? You can keep it to yourself. No, I'm just kidding. You can send that in <laughs> to us, and we'll let you know what you say. Yeah, regarding that, that. might be more more helpful. Okay, and uh, I think this is going to be the last one we do on today's show, Steph. Uh, 14. Yep. Read this one too. Uh, so, this is from Nick, not Captain Nick, it's from Nick Wilson. He says, Hi, APG crew. Just listening to APG 337 and have a couple of follow up questions on how the emergency oxygen system operates. Uh, do the oxygen masks automatically deploy in the cabin or do they have to be manually activated by one of the pilots? Do you want to take these one at a time? We can, sure. There's a bunch of questions. So that, that one's for you. Do you know the answer? I actually do not. Okay. This one I can answer. Yes. Uh, all the airplanes that I've flown, the oxygen masks are supposed to automatically deploy when uh, cabin altitude gets to a certain level. 
And if the masks don't automatically deploy, we do have a switch, a button, a lever, something to manually activate the, uh, uh, the panel's opening so that the masks will fall down. Oh, the other way to do it as well is to have a really hard landing and a little bit like of yaw. Like in a 727? Yeah, 727. I did that a few times. <laughs> what do they call it? The uh, orchard? The, yeah, the orchard. The, yeah. uh, the orange or- orchard or something like that, which kind of ties in with that last story with the Robinson helicopter because they were spraying the orange. orange fields. Yeah. So I, I actually have a question about that. I don't know if I ever asked you if that, you know, on the occasions, the few occasions, the rare occasions, I'm sure that that happened mm-hmm. this year excellent landings um they just have to come and reset all of them yeah or just pack you gotta them? you gotta restow all of them uh somebody <laughs> does maintenance or whatever i don't remember ever having to do that myself and uh, the one actually i only had the the orchard come out once and it was it was a horrible landing but i must say it was not entirely my fault in fact it was mostly not my fault uh, the captain that I was flying with, a friend of mine, and uh, we went to church together. Um, it was a landing at Sarasota, uh, Thanksgiving Day, I remember, or the day before Thanksgiving. It was like, I think, no, it was Thanksgiving Day. And we were coming in to land at Sarasota, short runway. Uh, they've since extended the runway a bit. Um, and it was a pretty good crosswind. And I had the thing, you know, set up just perfectly for a crosswind landing. Okay, there's the right wheel. And now I'm going to gently lower the left wing and lower the left wheel to the runway. And uh, the 727, at least in our the version that we flew, didn't have automatic spoiler systems. It was all manually uh, deployed by the captain. And I guess maybe he was getting nervous about the fact that it was a short runway. And maybe he was just like really primed to get those spoilers out as quickly as he could but while i was still trying to fly the left wing down to the runway he deployed the spoilers of course they all come out <laughs> you know, all at the yeah. same time and went, wham and uh, that was all she wrote it was it was horrible and and uh i had to stand at the door and say goodbye to everybody and endure all of the all the hate <laughs> but anyway uh. and there's more to the story but i'm not going to get into it now but uh anyway yeah. Well, next question also for you. Uh, what kind of warning is there in the cockpit? Audible or a visual alert? It's uh, an audible warning. And, and well, actually both. Uh, there's a... Because uh, you can look and see what the cabin altitude is. Correct? Right. That and there's a, an enunciation about cabin altitude. And, and, uh, there, and there's this really annoying <laughs> sound. That, I mean, you can't... You, you notice it. There's no way you could possibly not notice the cabin altitude warning system. Gotcha. And then he says, am I correct in saying that the pilots have their own oxygen masks themselves? Where are they stowed? Or do those also deploy from a panel above them? We do not have panels above us, at least no airplane I've ever flown. And on the 727 and I believe the L-1011, they were both hanging up like on a strap. And so it's a quick dawn mask uh, back in those days. And now um, most of the aircraft that I'm flying now are equipped with a full face mask. Um, and it's all... Uh, kind of rolled up like a cigar, uh, full face mask and um, for like, um, what do you call it? Visor um, goggles and uh, oxygen mask all built into one unit, which is great for, you know, if you have a smoke situation. So you can still 
you're supposed to be able to still see stuff through, mm-hmm. even if it's kind of smoky. Um, and uh, it's in a little box on either side of the captain or the first officer. And uh, you uh, just grab onto the thing and pull it straight up out of the uh, out of its stowage locker, whatever you call it. And uh, and then you hit a button on it and air pressure uh, inflates the uh, the straps and uh, and you just take it and put it in basically one motion right over the right over your head. And you have the mask on your face very rapidly. Gotcha. All right. Uh, here's his question for me. He says, at typical cruise altitude of 35,000 to 40,000 feet, how long does it take before uh, loss of consciousness? Um, and then he's got a second part to this, which we'll get into in a second. So I pulled up my handy. Um, these come from the FAA, so I trust these uh, figures and numbers. But basically, if we go back to... Um, Look, I'm going to um, give Jeff a pop quiz about this to see if oh, he no. remembers from earlier uh, episodes where I've talked about this. Do you know at sea level what the percentage of uh, or what percentage of the air is oxygen as com- compared to other molecules? I'd roughly? say approximately 16 to 18%. Close. I'd call it 20. 20. 20 okay. is a good, good round number. So then if you get up to 35,000 feet, what percentage of the air is composed of oxygen molecules. I think at 18,000 feet, it's half. So, um, I'd guess what, uh, I'd say maybe eight. So it's a trick question because the percentage doesn't actually change. You got me. (laughs) Darn it. Yes. (laughs) Um, the percentage doesn't change, but what changes is the pressure. So as you, as you go up in altitude, obviously the pressure drops, but you need that pressure gradient to drive the oxygen molecules across the membranes in the lungs so that you can actually utilize them. The partial pressure of oxygen. Partial pressure of oxygen. Yeah. Delta P. Uh, I need a, the bell. Oh, where's the bell? Sorry, I wish I knew you were going to say that. Sorry, I should have. I should have been ready for that. Let me see if I hit this B. <laughs> Yay! Yay! It All worked. Right. So what happens? And um, I haven't before. Say we Delta get to P the, again. Delta P. Yes. Um, <laughs> so basically, at sea level, you know, here in the U.S., we like to measure things in inches of uh, mercury. So that's twenty nine point nine two would be kind of a standard number. Um, so if you get up to uh, 18,000 feet, it drops to 14.94, assuming uh, standard conditions. If you're up to 40,000 feet, it's 5.53 inches of mercury. So you've gone all the way from 29 to 5. And now remember, because you have other molecules in the air besides just oxygen, um, it's still that 20% of, of those molecules are what um, are, are the oxygen molecules. There's other things there, too, that are competing to get across that barrier into your lungs as well that we don't utilize in quite the same way as oxygen, obviously. So um, it does become kind of a um, uh, uh, exponential decline. So it's not a not a linear thing. So he asked specifically about 35,000 and 40,000 feet. At 35,000 feet, the average person can expect about 30 seconds to a minute of useful consciousness. But just 5,000 feet higher at 40,000 feet, it drops to 15 to 20 seconds. Ooh. So, uh, yeah, um, you know, at, at lower altitudes, around 18,000 feet, 20 to 30 minutes is normal, but you get up above 20,000 feet and that cuts it in half again. So you can really appreciate that there's just this real exponential fall off in terms of how 
how long you're going to have for useful consciousness. So that's why they always tell you, secure your oxygen mask first before you go to help others, because if you don't get yours on, someone else is going to have to be helping you. <laughs> um, it's really not a lot of a uh, lot of time there. If that pressure kids. changes like really rapidly, what kind of physiological effects might you experience? Um, yeah. Sorry. So, I, I, you know, I think <laughs> at first it's just going to be more than anything. I think people are just going to be surprised by the amount of noise and air movement at first. Um, but then after that, it's really just going to be um, it depends on the altitude they're at. So if you're at a lower altitude, um, you really could just start to see signs of hypoxia first, which could be kind of slow and gradual onset. So say you're down at 18,000 feet, so you've got 20 minutes of useful consciousness. And if the pilots do nothing and keep the aircraft at 18,000 feet, eventually people are going to start exhibiting signs of hypoxia. One of the earliest ones is kind of this sense of euphoria, almost like being intoxicated with alcohol, where you kind of feel a little invincible, which is not a real great uh, side effect to get because you start to exhibit really poor judgment and you can't recognize that you're not able to perform tasks like you're, you were able to do previously. Um, beyond that, there's all kinds of things. You can actually have some air hunger and feel like you can't get a, a deep breath. You can get nauseated, a headache. Some of them are kind of similar to hangover symptoms as well. Um, some people get blueness of the lips, blueness of the fingertips, tingling in the, the extremities, um, you know, and like I said, you definitely can have Ooh. very, what's that? No. Tingling of the extremities. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> I, I'm just referring to the you know, oh, fingers and toes. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yes. Okay. The other ones I can't speak, speak for. <laughs> Maybe your nose. Um, tingling. Uh. And um, so, yeah, and then other signs, obviously, if someone was watching you and watching what you were able to do, if they were giving you simple math tests to perform or something, it would be very easy at first, but it would, you know, significantly degrade over time as you became more and more hypoxic and they would notice the blue discoloration and see that maybe you were getting a little fatigued and exhibiting poor judgment and inability to recognize your own ability to uh, perform those tasks. You may say, oh, yeah, I just did that math problem perfectly fine, but you added three and five to 24 and there's the person sitting next to you who has, who's not experiencing hypoxia is going to say, no, you didn't do that right. And you'd be like, yeah, it looks, that looks fine. So, um, so that's probably what, um, you could expect. Um, if it's, you know, if you're up at 40,000 feet, it's going to be quick time to being unconscious. So you're not really going to get through all of those stages of hypo. I mean, maybe you do really quickly, but it's going to be pretty quick. Just basically get your oxygen, oxygen mask on. So, um, I think that answered the first part of his question there. And then he says, um, to what extent does someone's physical fitness affect uh, the time frame? So this is um, a little bit more difficult question to ask. He says, for example, would an athlete such as a swimmer or a cyclist retain consciousness for significantly longer? Um, there's some thought out there that um, especially uh, highly conditioned athletes, so folks who have a, a high VO2 max or anaerobic threshold who utilize oxygen very efficiently will probably fare a little bit better for a little bit longer, but that's not a given. So it's not, it's not a consistent thing. It's not the same for every person. Um, it, I wouldn't count on it. Uh, you know, I think I'm a pretty well-conditioned athlete. I wouldn't count on if I were an uh, aircraft that was traveling at 38,000 feet and we had a, uh, you know, rapid decompression, loss of, um, of pressurization, I wouldn't count on having any more time of useful, useful consciousness than the person sitting next to me who may not be an athlete at all. Um, it's, it's that time frame is so short. It's not enough to be a significant difference. It's probably more noticeable at 
lower altitudes. But even then, it's it's not guaranteed. Some people are just much more susceptible to the effects of hypoxia, and it doesn't always have to do with their level of aerobic conditioning. And I know, um, I think you guys were talking about this, or we were talking a bit, uh, a bit about it more recently. Because um, I think dispatcher Mike has sent some, uh, either sent some audio feedback, or we were listening to his uh, podcast, or when he was in Oshkosh recently, he got a chance to do the um, um, basically oxygen deprivation um, simulation. And those are really good if you if you are a pilot to if you ever get a chance to do it because the nice thing about hypoxia is that a lot of times your symptoms will manifest in the same order each time you're hypoxic. So if you can recognize what hypoxia is for you as soon as it starts to occur, um, then that's a big uh, and, and be able to recognize it and not lose that uh, ability to uh, make good judgments about it and what to do next because sometimes it's it's hard to recognize you know especially if you get that euphoria and loss of judgment and so if there's other things that you can pick up on real quickly you can treat it and and cut it off a little bit more quickly so. very good do you have uh, some more he did hold on i got away from his okay. so he says uh this one's probably better answered by you again how long does the emergency oxygen supply last does it last longer in the cockpit okay so in Today's airplanes, including even the ancient Mad Dog, we have uh, oxygen generator systems that so in the passenger compartment. So the, when the panel falls down, the mask comes down, and they they always say you know to kind of pull on it. And what you're doing is you're activating the the canister, and you're you're initiating a, a chemical reaction, and so that chemical reaction results in heat and oxygen, which <laughs> doesn't really sound like it'd be a good mix, but um, the uh, uh, so that's what's happening when you use the oxygen. Uh, for instance, you have a rapid decompression or some kind of a pressurization problem, um, not a fire situation or a smoke situation. Uh, because uh, as we've mentioned before, uh, the uh, you're not getting 100% pure oxygen through those masks as a passenger. You're getting oxygen um, filtered in or, or combined with uh, the uh, the air uh, in the ambient air. So if you have a smoke situation, obviously that's uh, not going to keep the smoke from getting in your lungs. And if you have a fire situation, that's not good at all because you have oxygen uh, and that's fuel for a fire. Um, now, uh, now the old days, like the 727, uh, they didn't have those uh, oxygen generator kind of things the uh, masks that came down actually was fed were fed by a very a couple of large uh, compressed oxygen tanks that were located uh, underneath the uh, passenger compartment and uh, and then a separate tank located in the crew uh, the cockpit area for the crew the pilot crew and uh, in most airplanes that I know of uh, that's still the case the the uh, cockpit uh, the crew the pilot oxygen system is from a bottle of compressed oxygen located usually uh, for instance on the mad dog right behind where the first officer sits kind of toward the uh, sidewall there and that's one of the things that we pre-flight when we come in we look at the gauge to see what the pressure is on and there's like a minimum pressure it can get to before we have to have the bottle um, recharged or another bottle uh, put in uh, and uh, as far as the uh, did he ask about the uh, how long 
Yeah. The, so uh, the next, the, the final question was just how long does it take for an emergency descent from cruising altitude to an altitude that allows passengers to breathe normally? I'm trying to remember. Uh, I think it's something to the effect of around 15 minutes of oxygen generated by the oxygen generators. I could be wrong about that, but it's it's enough time they have calculated for us in the cockpit to get the airplane down to a low enough altitude so that uh, you don't need that extra oxygen. Are you usually to, looking for about 10,000 feet? Yeah. 10,000 is what we're looking for ideally. Um, and of course, if you're in mountainous terrain, 10,000 may higher. not be a good altitude. <laughs> so you have to be aware of where you are uh, around the world. And if there's a mountain range underneath you, or whatever, then you have to know about where, how low you can go. Uh, or you take a, a special escape route to uh, find uh, an area with uh, where you can go down to a, a lower altitude so that uh, the uh, partial pressure of oxygen is high enough so that everybody is safe and sound. Um, now, as far as the crew oxygen system, uh, I was uh, did a quick look uh, and I found an article on uh, – the pilot's professional rumor network, pre-prune, pre, uh, pre has nothing to do with um, fruit or prunes or anything, um, to my dismay. Uh, and they had a discussion back in 2010 regarding this subject, and uh, somebody put uh, a um, screenshot or, a, or they posted some images of minimum dispatch pressure uh, and how many cubic feet of oxygen what the uh, and it depends on the temperature uh, of the bottle and the number of crew members using the oxygen and uh, it looks like in this table the lowest figure that I see with two crew members at uh, 14 degrees Fahrenheit so very cold 430 and I'm assuming that means minutes so um, that's several hours obviously what would that be six four seven hours all the way up to you're gonna make me do math live on the podcast oh wait a minute oh that's i'm i'm reading this wrong uh the this is not this is the minimum dispatch pressure oh pressure doesn't say how long the uh okay let me read this paragraph right below the FAA, FAA requires that all pilots find their aircraft above 12,500 feet for 30 minutes or longer or at 14,000 feet or above during the entire flight must use some supplemental oxygen. The amount required is one liter of oxygen per minute for every 10,000 feet. For example, at 18,000 feet, there should be a flow of 1.8 liters per minute of oxygen available via a standard breathing device. So I guess if you have a crew of two, probably I would imagine that they would say three because you have a jump seat and that also has an oxygen mask system. So uh, whatever, you know, uh, whatever altitude times a flow rate of 1.8 liters per times three or whatever would probably be. Uh, so basically what I'm trying to say here is I have no idea. It, it could last for some time, but that reminds me of a story. Uh, from uh, Captain Al. Remember, he was uh, one of his jobs when he was building time was to, um, I think, or maybe he had already been hired by the regional airline. He was flying um, a an Embraer uh, mm-hmm. regional jet, and but they were ferrying the airplane across the Atlantic, right? I think, 
Oh, I and, don't remember the story for some reason. Oh, okay. It's very, I think it was Captain Al that was telling, I'm almost positive it, about this. It, like it sounds familiar, but I don't remember the, the details. And uh, they basically had a leak in the oxygen system and they, uh, <laughs> they did everything they could to uh, keep the thing going, to keep the flight going and including going to the back of the airplane and getting the uh, portable bottles. So in addition to the passenger oxygen generators and the, Flight crew, um, the cabin, not the cabin crew, the the cockpit crew oxygen system, which is a separate system. Uh, There are also um, portable oxygen bottles that the flight attendants have access to. And I think that uh, Captain L said they they went back to the back and got all the portable bottles that they could they could uh, muster. And uh, they were able to uh, get down low enough. But, the, you know, the problem is that if they get down too low, then they're, the increased fuel consumption meant right. that they weren't going to make efficient, it. They're not efficient. They're not going to make it. So you got to you know, stay at a certain altitude. But then you didn't you didn't want to get too high because then, you know, you have the danger of hypoxia. So it was quite a conundrum that they were in. And I'm seeing if anybody in the chat room can uh, verify Yeah, apparently this. he was telling us about it at Farnborough and he told it on PTUK once. Okay, yeah. So yes. It was. I, I mean, I remember the story vaguely, but I couldn't remember any of the details of what <laughs> I was probably consuming alcohol at the time I was listening to the story. Yeah, tell, tell, it may have been that time that you were reading that technical one. Uh, yeah. No. Um, Tony has says, I've heard Captain Nell's first officers always wear their oxygen masks. And that has nothing to do with hypoxia. It has more to do with. Well, it's just more you need a filtered air source. Yes. I think. <laughs> Now the oxygen system that we use in the in the cockpit can be a blend of air and ambient air and oxygen, or you can go into one hundred percent oxygen mode, which is what we'd have it on um, if we had a situation where we had to don our oxygen mask. We wanted on one hundred percent oxygen, and then there's even another setting uh, beyond that, which is emergency, and that puts a lot of positive pressure uh, coming into your mask. Uh, at 100% oxygen, but it's like so much pressure. Sometimes it's hard to speak because when you open your mouth, it's like this huge Rush gush of air, of air comes in your mouth. And it's hard to, to to fight against it. But uh, yeah, so that's the way our systems work up front. I hope that I didn't confuse everybody here no, with, uh, with that. Um, and so and says, I know that at least 50% of what I said was correct. At least. Yeah. At least. Same here. I mean, I read some of it just straight from the FAA, so it has to be correct i think yeah anyway nick says uh, as always thanks for a great show cheers nick wilson well thank you nick for uh, generating a lot of discussion about that and uh, as i said uh, if we didn't get some of that right perhaps uh, you know somebody will correct us on it they usually do yeah they usually do yeah. <laughs> and we love you for that of course we you know we need those fact checkers back they I know you know they they kept us on our toes oh well Anyway, uh, that's going to do it for this part of the show. And uh, very soon you'll be hearing the intro music and the voices of Captains Nick and Dana. Whoa. Speaking of the devils, from his studio in England, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Hey, hi, Jeff. Wow. Where have you been all this time? I don't know. You must have been late getting the message you were having a show. What a shame. <laughs> I'm here, though. Well, welcome. We uh, we missed you. Thanks. And 
Also joining us from his stately southern mansion in Smyrna, Georgia, barbecue master, bourbon, scotch, vodka, and everything else, connoisseur, motorcycle riding, pontoon boat skipper, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Nick. Great to be back, and uh, good to see you guys, and looking forward to uh, a great afternoon with you. Yeah, and uh, we are so glad that you joined us, and we have about an hour or so-ish remaining in the show, and I think uh, we should try to catch up with you all, and then we'll move on to covering a couple of news items, and then hopefully we'll have enough time to do the plain tale and some of the community feedback, so... Let's see. Uh, let's start with you, Dana. How have you been, sir? Well, I've uh, I've been fantastic. Not uh, doing a whole lot. I did fly finally last week, uh, Friday and Saturday. Got called out after sitting short call reserve all week, um, and uh, was uh, a pretty mundane uh, trip. Although I did get to fly with a brand spanking new hire pilot he had just completed oe and i was his first uh, first trip with me so we flew the first leg up to providence it was one leg out on friday um and we got there about 12 30 in the afternoon so i told him uh, in honor of your uh, welcoming you to airlines. Ah. yeah that's all right i can get that out in post yep <laughs> Please, please take that out. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Acme Airlines, and uh, the, uh, the in honor of that and his uh, his uh, achievement of being accepted, I took him out for a very nice dinner at one of my favorite restaurants in Providence on Federal Hill. And um, Andino's is the name. If Andino's happens to be listening, then I will gladly take a free appetizer next time I come in. But more likely, they're not. Um, so we went out for a very nice Italian. Uh, dinner and uh, then the next day we had a real early, early go we had to leave the hotel at 4 45 in the morning one leg back to atlanta then a churn up to uh, pittsburgh weather was fine uh, the aircraft uh, were fine the only thing was is when we got back to atlanta we had almost a three-hour sit very unusual when we got to atlanta we kept the airplane in atlanta for a three-hour set which is very unusual was it a weekend day it was a saturday yeah, yeah. It was first saturday i flown in, in quite some time then we get up to pittsburgh and we have a 45 minute turnaround and we swap aircraft <laughs> it was i have never swapped aircraft in pittsburgh i'm like this what's going on here <laughs> and the airplane was sitting in pittsburgh thank god for three hours so it was, it was just i don't know what i Dispatch a mic. Maybe you can answer why on that one. But that's this is great. also the uh, Labor Day weekend, right? It was. Indeed. Yeah. There you go. So got home in time to head to a pool party. And then uh, Sunday took the uh, mobile uh, floating APG meetup joint out on the lake for a little while and uh, had a very nice uh, Labor Day weekend. So nothing else. Uh, they haven't been using us because we are still a little bit overstaffed. So that's working out well for me because, well, I didn't work this week other than being on call. Excellent. Captain Nick, um, probably nothing going on in your life since the last time uh, you've been on the show, right? No, I'm dead quiet, like as usual, except from a, uh, a trip. Hey, hey, I flew. <laughs> um, and that was to Dubai, which is was quite interesting. It's the last time I went there 
Pardon me, I looked it up. It was early in 2015. So uh, that's kind of an interesting route going to Dubai. Goes in pretty high terrain. So uh, there are uh, escape procedures uh, to review if you uh, lose an engine or depressurize. Uh, a lot of countries to go over the normally. Some interesting countries uh, like Iran, Turkey, and uh, the likes. So, you know. Yeah, very good. You have to, uh, some you have to call ahead like 10 minutes. You have to get air defense uh, permissions to go through some countries. So a lot of procedures. Uh, anyway, in there, it was 43 degrees in Dubai. Woohoo. Um, and uh, lots of. Uh, did, you, did, did you put a j- jacket on for that? It's <laughs> pretty chilly. Oh, 44 well, I, Celsius. Of course, I, I, wore my, I wore my uniform, my uniform jacket, of course, and hat. Uh, anyway, it was uh, it was okay. Um, the nice bit was uh, a little meetup uh, at the hotel. I met uh, Mike, who works for a Middle East carrier and just happened to be in Dubai at the same time. And uh, he flies the 380. And he we had a lovely afternoon. I didn't have a lot of sleep. I uh, just, just caught 40 winks and uh, went and had some uh, Belgian beers. Uh, and a few snacks uh, and chatted away. He um, was an Embraer uh, regional pilot in the States, comes from Texas, got a a lovely wife who I didn't meet this time, but he has promised that we will meet next time and uh, possibly have some Mexican food. And um, then uh, he he told me about his, uh, you know, desire to go and fly uh, and see all corners of the world in uh, the biggest airplanes that are going around. So he uh, moved out of his regional job and uh, took this job uh, with this Middle East carrier, and he is loving it. Uh, you know, I hear a lot of uh, people who are disgruntled with their life out in the sand, uh, but he is not one of those. He uh, is just having a ball, really enjoying it. It was a pleasure to chat to him uh, and have someone who still has enormous enthusiasm for his flying. So lovely to meet you, Mike, if you're listening. Thank you very much indeed deed for picking up the tab. He waited till I nipped off to the uh, gents and then uh, snuck off behind my back and sorted that. So um, next time we get a chance to meet up, perhaps in uh, London or New York or somewhere on your route, uh, it'll be my turn. But that was super. Flight home went uh, not quite as well. I was a bit, I would say I was feeling a bit rough. It's the first time I've gone back to my room and fell asleep with all my clothes on. Uh, and uh, the next morning I flew it home, but I got a tick in the box, so uh, I'm off tomorrow morning uh, without a trainer, which will be nice, just uh, an ordinary FO, and we're off to Washington, where uh, we're organizing a meetup. So anyone who is in Washington uh, tomorrow afternoon stroke evening, I think it's going to be 6 o'clock we're going to meet up, and we're going to... uh, Oh, God. APG Slack. Here we go. Uh, St. Arnold's Muscle Bar, uh, 3433 Connecticut Avenue, Northwest Washington, D.C., 20008. Uh, Should they wear their uh, muscle shirts, uh, like their tank tops and stuff? I think so, yeah. And they, you know, they they work out while they're drinking (laughs) lots of protein drinks. I'll be looking for the beer. Um, so it's not far from the hotel, which will be really good. Um, Robert, or as we like to call him, Richard, um, is uh, setting it up. So that's brilliant. Uh, I'm pre- pretty sure uh, 
Hillel might make it. And uh, there are a couple others. Tubertoni might make it. And uh, yeah, and there was uh, one other who um, I'm just desperately trying to whiz through my social media contacts here. Uh, and Craig, yep, FO Craig might make it as well. So uh, that would be brilliant. So if anyone can make it there. Uh, some guy named Dick Nick. There are two. It's the Cleveland Park location. Yes, the Cleveland Park location. That means nothing to me, but um, there you go. Brilliant. I, I'm just going to be dragged along by my hair and told to buy beers probably. So that'll work for me. Uh, we had a wonderful adventure on my uh, trip that I flew this week, and we're going to going to talk about that meetup at the Flight 93 Memorial on the next show. And that'll be more appropriate because that'll be our, our 9-11 week. Uh, show next week so excellent um, yeah all right um very good and then uh, the following week you're going to have another meetup uh captain nick right yeah i'll be looking for a liver transplant if there are any donors out there <laughs> yeah you're going to be laying over in atlanta and on the what is it the 14th of the friday the 14th and uh, after sometime that evening, uh, we're going to find a place close to the hotel in which you'll be staying in downtown Atlanta. There will be a it'll be a APG public meetup meetup next day. Just the crew. We're going to have our first retreat. We're, we're dubbing it. And uh, not only um, all of us uh, on air personality people. <laughs> Yeah. What kind of personality? Not good. Um, but uh, also our producer, Liz, is going to be uh, flying in as well to join us with the uh, public meetup on Friday night and then our retreat the next day. So we're looking forward to that. Yeah. I mean, what do yeah. you do in a retreat? You you go through the door backwards or what? How does yes. this work? Yes. You retreat. You, you, you run. You, you run away. <laughs> you walk backwards going beep beep, beep. <laughs> that sounds brilliant yeah looking forward to that as well okay uh let's see anything else before we move on to a little bit of news in this segment uh, i'm more or less caught up however okay. um I, I am doing uh, i got some feedback from nick kidd from the art of white uh, mm -hmm. more than a year ago. And just so he knows, in case he's uh, listening this week, I am doing the plain tale he suggested and uh, sent me the information for. So, Nick, it's in the works at last. After well over a year, I've got round to it. So, Just when you think we've completely written you off. Exactly right. We, uh, so, and if anyone knows Nick Kidd on the Isle of Wight, give him a nudge if, he's, if he uh, doesn't hear this. That'd be great. Yeah. He's probably thinking, you're all dead to me. Yeah, he's probably given up completely. Uh, but uh, it'll it'll be uh, not this week, but next. Okay, excellent. Well, let me do a quick news uh, sounder. Stand by for news.
Okay, we're going to talk about a little incident. Uh, Brisbane to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia Airlines A330 proceeds to continue a takeoff despite a pitot tube error. In an extraordinary lapse that could have resulted in a crash, eight personnel, including the captain, failed to notice covers on three pitot sensor tubes near the cockpit on a Malaysia Airlines A330 in July. The Australian Transport Safety Bureau has just issued its first report into the serious incident at Brisbane Airport on the 18th of July that has left the industry stunned. The A330 was operating a late-night flight from Brisbane to Kuala Lumpur when the crew noticed faulty speed warnings on the takeoff. But the flight continued. Doesn't say when they noticed at what point during the takeoff, but apparently they uh, pressed on. And uh, now, you know, saying that it uh, it all you know could have resulted in a crash, that might be uh, getting a little bit uh, over dramatic because we do have procedures that if we do lose our air data systems that we can set pitch pictures and thrust settings and successfully fly the airplane without it, although it's not, you know, very convenient for us. But uh, anyway, covers are put on the pitot tubes by Malaysia, I guess, uh, to prevent insects such as wasps building nests or water accumulating. The covers have long red sashes, so they can't be missed. Well, (laughs) I guess they can be. So apparently the pedo probe covers were still on when one of the pilots did their walk around. I'm not, I'm not sure who would be responsible for that at Malaysia. Um, they did not notice that the pedo probe covers were still on the pedo probes and they proceeded for their flight and uh, they brought the airplane back safely. And now they'll probably have to, uh, talk to a few people and explain themselves yeah uh, n- they haven't exactly covered themselves in glory despite getting the aircraft safely back um the original error really uh you know you have to wonder For, from the very first day you start flying in your cessna 150 one of the checks you are always taught to do is to go around and check the pedo probe and and in some cases, you can check that the heating is working on our aircraft. We've got indicators to tell us if it's failed. So, But you actually physically go around and you look at the static vents, so you look at the pitot probe, you look at the total temperatures, and you make sure they're all clear of debris. There's nothing wrong with them. They're not bent. The uh, angle of attack uh, vanes as well in the same manner. You make sure everything looks fine and beautiful because th- that's just one of the essential parts of a walk-around check. Um, and uh, unless you're wandering around with your dark glasses on or in a uh, you know or you're just not paying any attention or you don't bother at all you should be absolutely cued in to uh, spotting this so that's that's problem number one problem number two i can see that i would expect the crew to have to explain is why they continued their takeoff when the airspeed indicators weren't reading uh now the fact that they Jeff went into a backup speed scale, a bus as we call it, on the Airbus, indicates to me that they weren't getting any uh, speed indications because if it had just been one side and say, um, because those two uh, that I can see in that picture, they're on the uh, captain's side. Uh, If the other side of the aircraft, the first officer's uh, pedos were... Uh, uncovered, then they should have got one speed indication that was correct, but perhaps they couldn't um, 
be sure of that. So they went into the Airbus uh, um, speed scale indication that you can uh, pull up. And to do that, you turn off all three uh, Adeta computers and uh, you come up with a speed scale that is based on angle of attack. And um, that is a very simple uh, one to follow. You just basically uh, fly the aircraft in the green. So if the speed starts varying too high and drops into the red band, you pull the power back. If it gets too low and drops into the lower red band, you push the stick forward. Uh, sorry, put the power forward. And, uh, it, you know, it, it's, I've just done a, an approach using that system in the simulator, and it's actually it's it's a really naughty and simple way of landing the airplane if you haven't got any airspeed. Not as accurate as having airspeed, but it works fine. You automatically get GPS altitude on the uh, PFD instead of pressure altitude, which obviously isn't based on um, sea level. It's based on your GPS altitude, which is not the same. So, but you can you can get a general idea f- from it, and you also get uh, GPS ground speed up there which obviously is useful, but not as accurate as uh, and useful as airspeed. But quite honestly, yeah, having made the errors that they did in getting airborne with the probes uh, covered, it sounds like they did a reasonable job getting it back. Excellent. Well, it's nice to hear from somebody who has uh, some knowledge of, you know, what they were confronting and how they handled the situation. So it looks, as you said, a couple big mistakes, uh, but they uh, ended up handling the, uh, the consequences pretty well. Okay. Um, Let's move on then, shall we, to this next one, uh, a a UT air or UT air. I'm not sure which way that's pronounced, I believe a Russian airline, um, at Sochi uh, on September 1st, 2018, overran the runway on landing. A supervisor at, uh, oh, at this, this article from Huffington Post says, a supervisor at Sochi International Airport has died after a landing plane careered, careened, it says careered, but we I'm sure they mean careened off the end of the runway into a riverbed and caught fire. The health ministry says 18 people were injured in the accident, which occurred at about 3 a.m. local time as the UTAIR operated Boeing 737 from Moscow, carrying 164 passengers and six crew members was landing. Uh, The uh, person who died was uh, one of the first responders and died of a heart attack, not getting hit by the airplane. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you might come to that conclusion if you read the, the headline. Um, anyway, according to the Aviation Herald, which was a, it's a much, much better source to use for these things. Uh, this flight, uh, 579 from Moscow to uh, Sochi, uh, landed on Sochi's runway 6, but overran the end of the runway, came to a stop in a riverbed past the runway. The aircraft's left engine, a CFM-56, burst into flames. The aircraft was evacuated. 18 occupants were injured. The other others remained unhurt. The aircraft was initially vectored for an approach to runway two. However, runway assignment was changed to runway six due to the weather developing. The aircraft aborted the first approach to Sochi's runway six, descending through about 2,300 feet due to changing winds. They were now reported from 200 degrees instead of 60 degrees. And position for another approach to runway six went around from about 400 feet again due to changing winds 
position for a third and final approach to runway six. Winds reported at two meters per second or four knots from 060 degrees on tower frequency, which ended in the runway overrun about 30 minutes after the first aborted approach and about 11 minutes after the go around. The airline reported the aircraft carrier. Oh, we already talked about that. The aircraft went off the runway. We already talked about that. I should have just eliminated that paragraph. Um, that's about all they say here. Um, you know, they they don't really go into any detail of you know why. You know, because maybe they were going too fast. They touched down too long, whatever. Uh, but uh, that's just basically the the facts of the situation here. And uh, I don't think. I don't know. Good landing. I'm not sure they'll, they'll be able to use the uh, well, I think everybody walked away from it. So that's a good landing. They, I don't think they're going to be able to use that airplane again. What do you well, think? I know. It looks like a standard 737. <laughs> yeah. Don't they all look like that? Although I'm looking at this one picture here and it looks like the winglet is facing the wrong direction. <laughs> oh, I thought it was supposed to be that way around. Okay. No, I don't think so. It's not a Mooney. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at the picture of uh, down the runway, uh-huh. uh, the aircraft parked in the in the the bayou, whatever you call that, that ditch, big the river concrete bed. ditch. Uh-huh. Um, it doesn't look a very long runway to me. How long was it? Uh, you know? That's what she said. Um, yeah. Well, family show. Folks. I'm family not sure exactly how long, but I don't no. think it's too short. Well, okay. Yeah. And some of the things I'm thinking about with this, uh, you know, that was three approaches for these guys. So mm-hmm. in the middle of the night, they, in the middle of the night. And how long had the day been? So probably long fatigue, yeah. probably fatigue uh, or being tired may have played a factor in it. Um, you know, the runway condition itself, is it a groove runway? Is it a non-groove runway? That can have a factor. You know, we know of a couple of aircraft that have run off the side and or end of runways because of a non-groove runway, depending on how long or how far down the runway they touched down, how the conditions were. Um, what about the spoiler failure? Could there have been a, you know, that type of scenario? Not to, not that that would uh, <clears throat> hopefully wouldn't cause it to overrun, but, you know, depending on how far down the runway and if, if the runway is non-groove runway, the spoilers don't come up to, de- you know, destroy the lift then the braking is far less effective. So these in, in you know, the uh, runway condition as well. So these are some things. I, I know the answer. I just did a quick uh, search of the Sochi airport on Wikipedia. The runway six is 2,890 meters or 9,482 feet. So it's plenty, plenty long runway. Plenty yeah, long. For a 7.3, that should be fine. Oh, yeah. Hmm. So hopefully so, we'll hear, you know, exactly what happened there. But as you said, Dana, I do think that fatigue and, you know, and, and kind of just frazzled nerves you know this is your third approach i'm sure the fuel state was getting kind of critical by this point yeah. perhaps and they yeah. thought we got to get this thing on the ground you know so well things are right and not worse for them now because the russia's investigative committee has launched a criminal investigation into the incident on suspicion of inadequate services with a risk to clients health rose of Yatsia. That's the lot. (laughs) Or is it? Or is that? That's a place, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Good old Rosie. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the investigatory agency, I guess. Mm. Okay. Um, So, yeah, we'll we'll, uh, see if uh, Simon gets any updates to the accident investigation. We'll hopefully know what happened here. And uh, let's see. What did we decide? Finally, H. This is an update to an incident that occurred um, in July. 
an Aeromexico Connect Embraer 190 had a major accident in Durango, Mexico. And uh, we talked about it uh, quite a bit. And it uh, turns out that according to this blog, what's the name of the blog? One mile at a time.com, that uh, the accident was blamed on a microburst during takeoff, which is a downdraft produced by a storm. And as of now, there's no evidence of pilot error being the cause of the accident. Despite that, all three pilots in the cockpit of this flight were fired. Why? Well, the Washington Post reports it's because investigators say that a trainee pilot was seated in the co-pilot seat when the plane took off, which he shouldn't have been. I guess the actual first officer was in the jump seat rather than the trainee. The captain took over the controls from the trainee just before the accident. The airline said in a letter to employees that the actions of the pilots were, quote, in direct violation of our company's policies, manuals, and procedures. So we have the uh, article from the Washington Post uh, also included here. That'll be in the show notes. Uh, yeah, so, you know, bad that it crashed. Good. Nobody died in it. However, you know, the fact that they were doing something, you know, directly in violation of their company policies uh, is not good. And that could have contributed to this accident. Oh, it could well have. I mean, uh, if the inexperienced pilot or whoever wasn't supposed to be at the controls was the one actually handling the aircraft, you can assume, I think, that uh, they wouldn't have been as well queued up, particularly in a, an emergency situation, if they had a microburst, uh, someone who was a regular pilot. Uh, and uh, even if the captain did take control, it might have been uh, because of the delay in taking certain actions that they ended up running off the end. So I, you just have to wonder at uh, the thought processes that went through the captain's mind and the proper first officer's mind as to why they put this bloke at the controls. I, I really don't understand it myself. And I think it should be said that uh, the captain is in charge and the uh, the buck stops with him and his decision making the decision to allow that airplane to that flight to take off at all based on the conditions is something i'm sure that uh, you know they're going to be taking a look at as well yep yep i mean just uh, just don't do it i mean if somebody if it's written in the policy and procedures which is not only in the company policy and procedures uh, for our company but also it's a direct violation of the far's um, here in the United States, if you're not rated in that aircraft, you don't fly it, period. Yeah. You're not, you know, you can fly it, obviously, if you have an instructor next to you teaching you and that you've been type rated in the aircraft, and that's fine. But, yeah, it's allowing somebody that is just learning how to operate the aircraft to, to fly it. And just, uh, you know, I think the captain had a complete and total lapse of judgment on that one. Yes. I think we all agree with that. Okay, that's, uh, that ends our second news segment, and now we're going to try to get some of your feedback uh, covered. Captain, incoming message. Okay, let's start with 11. Louisiana Steve sent us this feedback. He says, feedback and a request. Hi, APG crew and APG community. Louisiana Steve here with a request. I am currently in the process of changing careers leaving the evil empire of the oil and gas industry for a career in aviation. 
Yay. Way to go, Louisiana Steve. I met Steve at the uh, brief visit that I had to Oshkosh, um, not this year, but the previous year, 2018. Oh, I thought he was leaving the Empire to join the Rebel Force. Uh, well, maybe the uh, it's it's a Rebel Force aviation that he's uh, leaving for. <laughs> At this time, I'm preparing to take my commercial check ride and hope to have this completed in the next few weeks, and then on to my first position as a professional pilot. Woo-hoo. Now, this was sent to us on August 14th. It is now seventh, the seventh of September. Perhaps he has already uh, passed his commercial check ride. I don't know. Well, let's hope he has. Yeah, I hope so, too. Okay, then he continues. As we all know, the hours in your logbook play a large part in the options available to you when applying for entry-level positions. Rather than rent a Cessna 172 for $135 per hour to fly circles in the local area, that's actually pretty cheap, isn't it? $135 an hour? Um, Anyway, uh, I decided to buy my own aircraft and explore this great nation of ours while building the hours I require to become competitive in the job market. I'm now the proud owner of a RANS 7-14, a single-seat aircraft powered by an 80-horsepower Rotax that burns 3.5 gallons per hour, oh, it just sips fuel, uh, in cruise, and cost me the very reasonable sum of $5,000. Wow. That's very affordable, much more reasonable than the 172 rental. For those of you out there looking for ways to build time in an affordable way, there are options out there. Now, on to my request from the APG community. I need to tap into the collective knowledge of our community for suggestions on where to visit. I am quite a history buff, so perhaps you know of an airport with a museum on the field or an airport that has some historical feature. For example, Wendover Airport in Utah, the base where the Enola Gay crew trained. Some of the base survives to this day, including the hangar where the famous aircraft was stored. Or perhaps you would like to meet up for lunch. I hope to meet as many APGers on this journey as possible. I'll be recording my time-building adventures on a website that I recently started. The address is stevecanfly.com. We'll put that in the show notes. If you'd like to contact me with suggestions or comments, I can be contacted via the contact form on the website or at my email address, which is steve at stevecanfly.com. Please be gentle with critiques of the website. It's my first time trying to make one, he says. Well, I've just been over there. And there's not an awful lot there to indicate um, Steve's current progress. Um, So we don't know from his website what stage he's got to because it's still very much uh, under construction. Well, we need to help him out and send him some feedback, uh, contact him with that contact form and uh, try to talk him into uh, visiting somewhere where you are and at least getting together for lunch or dinner and uh, perhaps giving him some ideas as to uh, some pretty cool places to check out. And it sounds like he's going to be all over the country. So, um, yeah, doesn't matter where you are. I don't that doesn't sound to me like he's going to be flying his Rand 714 over. I mean, it's S14 over over the pond. <laughs> Probably not I a good idea. I was going to ask if, he, if you think he would make it to uh, to London. I mean, he could do it in little hops, uh, you know, over uh, um uh, you know, up to Greenland and then uh, across to Iceland and yeah. I'm sure it'd be somewhere in Scotland or the sea in between. Perhaps you put floats on it. And Don't let him talk you into this, Louisiana, Steve. Don't let him talk <laughs> yeah, you into this. Say, now, now, you, now you might as well just keep on going all the way around the world. All the way around the world. There you go. 
Great idea. I look forward to uh, reading his blog on stevecanfly.com, and I'm very excited about this uh, mid-career transition to um, flying. And uh, I'm going to read this last paragraph, and this is a very important one, I think. Also, I know this feedback is getting a little long, but I want to take this opportunity to give a special shout out to one member of the community, and that is you, Captain Dana. I've been a listener since way back at episode one. Wow. And I still remember the day you made your first appearance, which I think was episode 90. It was. I have always wanted to be a professional pilot, but thought I had missed my chance. Then I heard this tale of a gentleman Boy, I thought he was talking about Dana. Yeah, I was going to say, definitely get the wrong person there. Maybe Nick. Then I heard this tale of a gentleman who worked his way up from gate agent to CFI to the regionals back when the regionals were a real test of character. Then on to Acme, one of the largest airlines in the world. Hearing the story is what gave me the push I needed to realize that I could make the move into aviation. Hearing your recent upgrade to captain has been wonderful, and I hope you're enjoying it. On behalf of all of us in the APG community who take inspiration from your journey, thank you. I hope to buy you a beer with my first paycheck earned from flying. Hope to see you all out there in the big blue sky, Louisiana, Steve. Or bourbon, yeah, that's probably what he'd prefer. Yeah. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Uh, very nice uh, shout out to our co-host, Captain Dana. Absolutely. You know, that puts a, a, a huge smile on my face because, you know, that's really the reason why I do the show. Um, to help others that have, uh, that have, you know, some trepidation or hesitation or a dream, you know, a hesitation from uh, going for the dream. And uh, it really, for me, uh, is is uh, instrumental in my life that I I made that jump, and uh, just you know, hearing from Louisiana Steve and, and congratulations, it's it's a fantastic journey, and honestly, uh, this is probably going to be among one of the best times in the history of this business to uh, make that jump and in your you know future security at least uh, for the near future that we can see is is going to be really uh, really awesome so i think you 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 know you're making a huge uh, huge leap of faith and i um i am a testament to the fact that it can work out and i'm i'm, I'm be pulling for you 110 percent. and thank you so much for recognizing that you know that's that's the reason why i'm actually here because well uh, you know nick and and uh, jeff both are military guys came up that route and you know have that background uh dr steph of course is a civilian pilot and you know she's continuing to be a doctor versus uh, pursuing the uh, airline career and I'm I'm the one that came up that way and uh, certainly been able to share my experiences and um, and uh, optimism and uh, hope that uh, people like yourself Steve can come on up and uh, and and do what I've done so thank you well you know that day that episode 90 for those of you who have been listening for that long or those of you who have uh, who are suffering from the APG syndrome and uh, started listening to some of those earlier episodes you'll know that episode 90 was in October of 2013 and we had a very long layover in Savannah Georgia and I asked Tony to join me because he wasn't really sure about what was going on with this whole podcasting thing and didn't want to use his real name. And uh, I asked because uh, as we were flying that day and I learned of 
Dana's um, extraordinary adventure and how, because I always am curious as to how people get to where we are at this point. And uh, I thought, wow, I've never heard that kind of route uh, to to get get to where you are here today. And would you mind if you don't have anything planned on this really long layover in Savannah, would you mind coming over to the room and being my co-pilot? And uh, really, it was the first time on the Airline Pilot Guy show that I had someone else join me for a show. So I'm glad that uh, you, uh, with trepidation, I should say, uh, joined me for that show. We had a great time and even a better time after the show. <laughs> Went to some yes. bar and uh, probably had way too much to drink. But we had it was a very, very long layover. So very long in the in the in the area of what, 20? Yeah, you know, somewhere around 20 Something hours like that. We got in very hours. early into Savannah. So Anyway, but, so I'm uh, glad that uh, you, uh, you know, decided to take me up on the offer, and I'm glad that you're now part of our full-time team since 2016. Well, in, in all honesty, uh, it's been a, an unbelievable ride, um, and I, I appreciate your comments and your, your, your ear to listen to what my experience was. Now, if, if most of you are listening to the radio podcast, if any, any day I look like a Tony, today's the day, day I look like a Tony with my flat cap on. A Tony. A Tony. You know, me and my paisans are going to take care of business. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So anyways, but, uh, you know, Jeff, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to come on and, you know, just that, that uh, interaction between the two of us and, you know, being your first uh, co-host on the APG, certainly an absolute honor um and it's been an absolute pl pleasure to be a part of this crew because you know it's it's you know louisiana steve is, is a perfect example why we why we do this show is we want to you know help the people out there in the community um be positive influences in, in their life and uh, help help people to understand what we do and help them to make decisions you know, if that's what they choose to do. So that's the whole reason why we do the show. And, and without you putting this all together and, and, um, and all of us being a part of it, uh, you know, we wouldn't be influences in people's lives. So it's, it's been just a great, it's a great ride. Yeah. You know, in, in a lot of ways, probably more so, you know, yes, I'm very proud to be captain. It's, it's a lifelong, you know, dream and achievement, um, to be where I'm at. And, you know, honestly, I've, I've been asked by a lot of my friends that, you know, are, um, just, uh, lame and don't understand uh, the industry all that much. Um, you know, how's your new job? How's your new position? How, you know, how's it working out? And I explained to them, listen, the, the, the one thing that I really truly love about being the captain, um, is that I get to set the tone. Yep. And I am one that likes to have a positive tone. There are too many people out there that don't realize how awesome of a position we have. And that's because of exactly what you, I'm sorry, uh, exactly what you mentioned. And that is that my, my full, fully rounded background in this business and everything that I've done, I truly appreciate the position that I'm in now. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a thing. It's just being able to set that really positive tone that we can, you know, we're working for our customers. We work with each other to, to provide that excellent service and, and safety. So I just, uh, I, I really think that uh, even saying all that, the biggest point that I'm trying to make here is that even though I'm, you know, it's a lifelong achievement becoming an airline captain, um, you know, being part of the show is really huge, uh, huge boost to me personally. And, and, uh, you know, I think it's uh, just as rewarding to be, 
uh, on the show with you guys. And of course, Dr. Steph um, is, is really, really fulfilling for me as well. Well, you know, we have, you know, I can't lie. We, we really have fun with uh, when, when we do the show, because for me, it's like getting together every week with uh, really, really good friends, my best friends and talking aviation and beer and whatever happens to come up in the conversation. But we, so we hope that it's entertaining. I think it is um, educational meh, sometimes, uh, but to 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 inspire and encourage uh, and educate people is, you know, really our main goal. We're, we're kind of giving back because we've all had great careers and we just want to share that with you all listening. So, uh, thank you, um, Louisiana Steve for sending in that feedback and, uh, the, that great shout out to Dana. I'm sure you're not the only person who feels the same way. And, uh, yeah. Well, you know, and the most important thing we've got to mention, just like we talk about our customers, right. On the, on the airplane without everybody that's in this community, that, that you've kind of spearheaded, we don't have this community. That's right. Right. So a shout out to all of those listeners out there that take the time to listen to our rhetoric every week. That's right. Without you so, all listening, uh, we wouldn't have a show. Exactly. So. Correct. So can't oh, forget our, oh, our hang on, mate. We, we'd have a show. We just wouldn't have any listeners. Well, that's true. <laughs> we'd probably still be here just uh, doing this for our own edification. Uh, before we uh, mess up anything else, uh, let's uh go with uh, absolutely the pinnacle of the show, which is this week's plane tale by the old pilot. The old pilot's plane tales, the Bong Bridge. Drive along U.S. Route 2 between Duluth, Minnesota and Superior, Wisconsin, and you'll pass over a long bridge. It's a pretty impressive piece of engineering, and it replaced the old original wooden trestle Arrowhead Bridge in 1985. The bridge is called the Bong Bridge, perhaps an odd name for a construction that won the Wonders of Wisconsin Engineering Award in 2007. But the name doesn't originate from a dubious smoking habit, nor the noise it makes as you cross it. There are other memorials named Bong, including a recreation park where an Air Force base once stood, and perhaps more appropriately, Bong Airport in Superior, and a historical centre in the same town, but nothing that you would really expect for such an exceptional man who bore that name. They are there to remember Richard Ira Bong, the United States all-time Ace of Aces, the highest scoring fighter ace in US history. Dick Bong, or as he is sometimes referred to as Bing Bong, came into the world on the September the 24th, 1920 in Superior, Wisconsin. He was the oldest of nine children born to Dora, an American of Scots and English descent, and Carl Bong, a Swedish immigrant. Dick took an early interest in aviation, building models and watching the aircraft fly over his parents' farm, carrying mail for President Calvin Coolidge's summer White House in Superior. He entered the Poplar High School where, like our beloved Captain Jeff, played in the marching band, albeit with the clarinet. 
graduating from high school, he studied at the State Teachers College and, whilst there, realised his dream to become a pilot by enrolling in the Civilian Pilot Training Programme and then the Army Air Corps Aviation Cadet Programme. His ability marked him out as a potential fighter pilot, so he was given a commission as a second lieutenant and was awarded his coveted wings in the beginning of 1942. His first posting was onto the Lockheed P-38 Lightning with the 49th Fighter Squadron at Hamilton Field. Being a young fighter pilot, he was full of fun and hijinks, and before long he was grounded and up in front of General Kenny for buzzing the home of a recently married pilot. Luckily for Dick, there were three others also being reprimanded for looping the Golden Gate Bridge, flying low up Market Street and blowing the washing off a clothesline in a house in Oakland. Kenny bawled them all out saying, Monday morning you check this address out in Oakland and if the woman has any washing to be hung out on the line, you'll do it for her. I want this woman to think we are good for something else besides annoying people. Now get out of here before I get mad and change my mind. That is all. In private, Kenny remarked, We need kids like these. If you don't want to fly down Market Street, I wouldn't have you in my Air Force. Being grounded, Bong missed a deployment to England to fight in Europe, and he was moved onto the 84th Fighter Squadron and out to the Pacific. He started off flying P-40 Warhawks from Darwin on the north coast of Australia with the 9th Fighter Squadron, whilst they waited to be equipped with the Lightning. And in the meantime, he took up a temporary duty at Port Moresby on New Guinea with the 39th as they already had the P-38. It was here that, during the Battle of Buna Gona and the conclusion of the Kokoda Trail campaign, that the Allied forces learned of the problems that they were to encounter everywhere during the Pacific Theatre. The Japanese in New Guinea were well dug in, and the limitations of the Allied equipment and logistical support, as well as the difficulties caused by the awful terrain, the vegetation, the climate and disease became obvious. The Air Force's task of support and protection for the ground forces was essential, and before long, Dick Bong claimed his first victory, shooting down a Mitsubishi A6M0 and a Nakajima KI-43 Oscar over Buna. For this, he was awarded the Silver Star for valour in combat. Now also equipped with lightnings, Dick rejoined the Ninth, the Flying Knights, when they were deployed to Port Mosby. Pretty soon he was back in the action, shooting down Zeros, heavy bombers, and then in July 1943, on a single day, he claimed four Japanese fighters in an action that earned him the Distinguished Service Cross. However, not every mission was against the Japanese. As was reported in the Australian newspaper, The Evening Advocate, Lieutenant Richard Bong, a US fighter pilot who has shot down 10 enemy aircraft in the Southwest Pacific, has become the founder member of the Crocodile Club. 
With cannon fire from his lightning, he killed a giant alligator, trailing a frail rubber boat, which contained three pilots who were bound on a rescue mission. By now, with 15 kills, he was not only an ace, but fast climbing the ranks of the most successful pilots in the Air Force. Apart from his score of four kills on the 26th of July, unlike many others, Dick Bong's kills were evenly spread out and a great number of his kills were in the earlier stages of the war against very experienced Japanese pilots. Bong was also considered lucky in finding the enemy. Some pilots hardly saw an enemy aircraft in all their time flying combat. He was promoted again, this time to captain, and was given leave to return home. It was while back in Superior and attending the State Teachers College homecoming event that he met Marjorie and began dating her. When he got back to the Pacific, he bought with him a large photo of his new love and used it to adorn the nose of his P-38, which he named Marge after her. Back in the thick of things, his score of downed enemy aircraft steadily rose. He was now assigned to the 5th Air Force Fighter Command, but allowed to freelance with the squadrons under its control. On February 15, 1944, Dick Bong scored his first victory in his newly emblazoned Marge, and a few days later he destroyed a Japanese transport full of officers on the runway at Weewak, but this wasn't added to his total, as it was only aircraft in flight that were counted. With another fighter and a couple of Sally bombers in March and April, Captain Richard Bong had reached the impressive tally of 24 confirmed kills and was approaching something of a milestone. Fast Eddie Rickenbacker had been a racing car driver in the Indianapolis 500 before the First World War and was lucky to be chosen for pilot training in the nascent Army Air Corps. Flying Newport 28s and then Spad 8s, his natural skills showed through and he amassed an astounding 26 victories. By the end of the war, he was the most successful American fighter pilot in US history. This was the milestone that Bong was approaching. Then, on a remarkable day, the 12th of April 1944, Captain Richard Ira Bong recorded three more confirmed kills and overtook Rickenbacker's total. The press went mad. It's Major Richard Ira Bong now. The promotion came Wednesday, the same day that he shot down two Japanese planes to become the first American pilot in history to down 27 enemy aircraft in aerial combat. And, of the 20 Japanese planes that bravely rose to intercept the 200-plane Allied force, eight were shot down, two by the guns of the Lightning Fighter, piloted by America's number one ace, Major Richard I. Bong. The two victims raised Bong's total at 27, highest in American history. A special headquarters release announced Bong's achievement and said all of his 27 victories had been scored whilst flying the lightning fighter over enemy territory. Another headline read, He wears 20 medals. Captain Bong bought lightning's home on one engine five times and his new lightning already has ak holes in it. 
He wears 20 medals, including the Distinguished Service Cross won last October, the Silver Star with Oak Leaf Cluster, the Distinguished Flying Cross with 4 Oak Leaf Clusters, and the Air Medal with 11 Oak Leaf Clusters. But of all the words written, I suspect it was those said by Eddie Rickenbacker that meant the most to Dick Bong. He wrote, Just received the good news that you are the first one to break my record in World War I by bringing down 27 planes in combat, as well as your promotion so justly deserved. I hasten to offer my sincere congratulations with the hope that you will double or triple this number. But in trying, use the same calculating techniques that has brought you your results to date, for we will need your kind back home after this war is over. Despite being on the staff of the 5th Fighter Command and not needing to fly any more, after some well-deserved leave, Dick Bong continued to operate on missions, and his total rose. His techniques are probably best described by one of his wingmen who accompanied him on many missions. Major Bong suddenly rolled out of formation and began a descent. As I watched him, I could see a bomber low on the water in the distance, lining up for a run on the landing area. As wingman, my job was to cover him during our mission. Richard was a good fighter-driver, but his real forte was gunnery. I had a ringside seat and watched a master at work. Approaching to about 150 yards, he was a little high and behind the bomber when he snapped off a quick burst. Just that. The tail gunner position turned into a shower of metal and glass shards. With no tail gunner to worry about, he moved into about 50 yards and, with about three degrees of skid to the left, began to work the left engine area. I could see the hit sparkling, the pieces coming away, and in seconds smoke began to trail from the engine. I scanned the area again. As I looked back down, he started rolling the nose of the 38 to the right. He methodically stitched through the fuselage and cockpit area on his way to the right engine. It was almost surgical. His aim so precise, hardly any of the tracers missed the target. A few seconds burst and the right engine began to disintegrate. Soon the Betty fell off into the sea. In a matter of moments, it was over. On the 17th of December, Bong and I were at it again. I had the privilege of covering this great ace on what would become a history-making sweep over the landing beach on Mindoro Island. At 4.25pm and at about 9,000 feet, Major Bong closed on an Oscar, and, as I stated in the confirming action report filed back at Dulag, I saw Dick close in on the Oscar from dead astern and fire a short burst, which bought pieces from the Oscar. The Oscar turned right and, with another burst from Major Bong, did a half-roll trailing fire and crash into the jungle. This was the 40th confirmed kill for Major Bong, making him America's ace of aces, probably for all time. And so it was. On the recommendation of General Kenny, the commander of the Far East Air Force, Major Bong received his highest award, the Medal of Honor from General Douglas MacArthur. His citation reads, For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity, 
in action above and beyond the call of duty in the southwest Pacific area from the 10th of October to the 15th of November 1944. Though assigned to duty as a gunnery instructor and neither required nor expected to perform combat duty, Major Bong voluntarily, and at his own urgent request, engaged in repeated combat missions, including unusually hazardous sorties over Balikpapan, Borneo and the Layette area of the Philippines. His aggressiveness and daring resulted in his shooting down eight enemy aeroplanes during this period. Bong didn't really take to the publicity that he was receiving, as he was by nature a quiet man. A colleague recalled, The other night a bunch of boys were eating dinner in an American canteen somewhere in the southwest Pacific. A bomber pilot jabbed his fork in the general direction of the door and said, See that guy over there? That guy over there was a medium-sized youngster in the middle twenties, dressed in wrinkled, dusty khaki pants and shirt. No tie, no cap on his unruly blonde hair, and only a tiny set of captain's bars and a pair of pilot's wings to distinguish him from the run-of-the-mill G.I. Actually, he looked like the kid who used to fill the tank of your auto and wipe the windshield down at the corner filling station. And he might well have been just that. No one gave him any attention, except the other pilots, but there was nothing about him to command attention. That, said the bomber pilot, is Dick Bong. After Bong scored his 40th victory, General Kenny sent him home, this time for good. He was America's ace of aces, with 40 aerial victories, 200 combat missions, and over 500 combat hours behind him. He undertook a public relations tour of the United States. Being the kind of man he was, it was not something he enjoyed. At the Pentagon, he met Bob Johnson, also there on a PR tour. Dick explained that he had been dragged around the country on war bond tours and hated it. I've got this coming out of my ears, Johnson. I'm sure glad to see you. You can help me bear up under this nonsense. It's worse than having a zero on your tail. The good side of it, though, was that he got a chance to see Marge, and they got married on February the 10th, 1945. Bong went on to work as a test pilot at Wright Field, helping to develop the Lockheed P-80 Shooting Star. He studied jet propulsion theory and boned up on the engineering details of the new plane for two months before getting a chance to fly one. After being checked out in the P-80, he flew it 11 times that summer. Then, on the day that the newspaper headlines blared out the shocking news that Enola Gay had dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, they carried a smaller headline below. Jet plane explosion kills Major Bong. Shortly after takeoff, flying the shooting star, Bong's main fuel pump had failed, and for reasons unknown, he didn't turn on the auxiliary pump. Low to the ground and descending fast, he jettisoned his hood and jumped, but too low to survive. He died wrapped in the silk of his parachute. So, 
If you're driving on Route 2 between Duluth and Superior and pass over the Bong Bridge, have a thought for the man that it memorialises, or better still, take a quiet wander around the Poplar Cemetery in Douglas County, Wisconsin, and stand for a moment to honour a fine pilot and a true American hero. Great plain tale again. Oh, thank you, Jeff. But an easy subject. Well, when I say easy, it's uh, it's a fantastic story. Sad, sad ending. But uh, I really enjoy uh, you know those kind of tales where you know you can um, uh, you know inv- evoke some real emotion because of a guy who was you know such a down hero, and this man was. But one of those wonderful, unassuming people quiet teetotaler, uh, who, um, very introspective, never made a big thing about his achievements, but was one of the United States Air Force's most remarkable pilots. Amazing. And I didn't realize they uh, used bongs way back then, but... um yeah. Or did I miss something? I <laughs> I was gone for a little bit of that story. I, no, I, think, I think we're talking about the Vietnam War, man. Oh, yeah. Okay, That's I'm sorry. Slightly different war, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we're going to keep it moving on. Again, thank you for uh, for that wonderful plain tale, oh, Nick. Oh, grateful. Uh, no problem. Okay. Uh, let's see here. We got a – well, I'm going to skip that one. I'm sorry. I was going to do Andrew uh, – that feedback, but uh, I'm going to change my mind. Um, hmm. How about this one from Tarquin? Greetings, my aviators of the airwaves. Tarquin here. I've been catching up with your podcasting endeavors over the past few weeks. Firstly, I'm absolutely delighted you all enjoyed your trip to dear old Blighty. It appears you were well looked after by Captains Nigel and Nick. We were. And viewing and watching dispatches from the field, you lovely Americans had a good time. Although I'm confused about your major interest. Is it aviation or is it beer? Nonetheless, you've covered both with some aplomb. I read that at one stage, Captain Jeff went to church and Nigel and Nick kept the pub warm for Jeff's return. True friendship. Yes, very much so. Very true. There was a large meetup for Av Geeks or for drunkards or both. I hope all who attended behaved themselves. Yes, I think so. Now back to your delightful podcast. I was so pleased that uh, the young Ivor chap had written in to congratulate everyone on a great trip. Although he was also he was kind enough to thank me for my cultural coaching. So kind. But then he went on to insult each and every one of you. What an absolutely bloody Excuse me. What an absolute bloody buffoon accusing poor Dr. Steph of being a redneck when in fact she's a gritty Chicago lass. And then the idiot says Captain Dana is from Chicago when the innocent young lad is from Boston. Interestingly, we have a similar town close to me spelt Boston. It has a lovely church and is part of the pilgrim story. Anyway, be assured by uh, the next time I see this Ivor character, I shall give him a sound thrashing with a copy of Debrett's, or at least a firmly rolled up edition of the Tatler. What's Debrett's? Is that another newspaper, Nick? No, Debrett's is a list of all the aristocracy in oh. uh, in the UK. Oh, and I actually pronounced it correctly. Good. Oh, you did. Very good. Uh, 
But on to other aviation matters. I'm beginning to enjoy your show. <laughs> some <laughs> some very <laughs> beginning to. Well, that's good. Victory. Yeah, some very interesting subjects covered. I see the village idiot Ivor even sent in half a half interesting question the other week. And it provoked a lively discussion. Well done for entertaining the half-wit Ivor with your superior knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) I must leave you all now, my dear friends. And now I'm going to attempt an APG sign-off. So wishing you blue, juice, skies, and chemtrail dreams. (laughs) Kindest regards, Tarquin. (laughs) I actually think I like that better than clear skies, (laughs) unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. What was that? Tarquin is uh, so much nicer than that chap Ivor. That's yeah, for sure. He is. We like Tarquin. Much more um, cultured, apparently. Yes, gentlemanly. <laughs> and uh, we still have a few minutes left here. This, um, what do you think, folks? Uh, guys, you're looking at this. Um, anything out there just jump at you at all uh, for covering? We have a couple of pieces of audio f- feedback. Unfortunately, uh, the one from Jim is a little bit too long for the time remaining. There is a shorter audio feedback. Isn't yeah, there? Simon sent us in some shorter audio. Yeah, You okay. want to listen to that? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Hello, APG crew. First off, Simon here with my second set of feedback, which I'm sending. Firstly, thank you for playing my ridiculously long feedback that I sent regarding Flex. And Jeff, thanks for the crickets. No, I'm not Rick. So today, um, just a little bit of feedback, and I'll try and keep it really short this time. It's regarding mindset approaches. Last episode, we were talking about British Airways and the technique where they hand over control on final approach. Now, I don't fly for BA, but at our airline, we do do a monitored approach under certain conditions, specifically a CAT2 approach. The reason is, unfortunately, we didn't pay for auto land on our jets. So we can't do an auto land approach. The best we can do is CAT2. And in that situation, we carry out a monitored approach, which is the sort of thing that's carried out at BA. It's very much like a normal approach. However, there are a couple of differences. At some point prior to flying the approach, and this will be briefed in the uh, cruise phase, the pilot monitoring will take over flying from the pilot flying. So the roles essentially switch. Because it's a CAT-2 and it will be a captain's landing, that means the first officer is going to fly the approach. And that will be flown right down to CAT-2 minima of 100 feet. The differences come just before decision height. So on a normal CAT-1 approach, the pilot monitoring would call 100 above and the pilot flying would call checked. And then at decision height, we'd call decide and the pilot flying would say either visual or go around flap three. What happens on the monitored approach is the pilot flying now calls 100 above and the pilot monitoring calls checked. At this point, the pilot monitoring, i.e. the captain, is looking out the window, specifically looking down below the aeroplane to see if they can get a visual contact with the lights. And then... The first officer, the pilot flying, calls decide. The pilot monitoring, the captain, hopefully says visual and takes control. He doesn't say I have control because at this stage it's a given that if he's visual he will take control. This is pre-briefed. If, however, he isn't visual, he will call go around. In the case of a go around, at decision height, the first officer will fly the go around. However... If the captain has taken control, having become visual, and then deems it necessary to go around, 
he will fly the go around. So Jeff and Nick, I know there was a little bit of a debate about who would do what. It's fairly well defined for us who will carry out the go around. It's the pilot who has control at that moment in time. There's no reversion of controls later on. So that's um, a monitored approach in a nutshell. We can actually do it on a Cat 1. Our parte allows us to do it either Cat 1 or Cat 2, but it's just for a Cat 2 approach that it's mandated at my airline. Of course, your mileage may vary, and uh, I imagine British Airways do it very differently. I do think they have quite a number of different roles that they define and make it very complicated for what actually isn't that complex a procedure. Why you might want to do this? Well, I suppose if you're in those low visibility procedures, then as the captain, it makes sense that your concentration could be looking out of the window and trying to get the visual references. And the first officer can maintain a very good scan of the instruments to ensure the automatics are doing what they're supposed to be, rather than trying to both look out the window and gain visual reference and maintain a good scan. That's why it's, it's broken up in that way. Hope this is helpful. Hope it's not too long. And thanks again for a fantastic podcast, guys. Well, you're very welcome. If only Jeff was here to thank you in person. I'm but. here as well. Thank you very much. <laughs> I was just trying to find the mouse to unmute myself. He is. And I was, and I was typing at the same time. And apparently you all heard the uh, doorbell going off as well. Yes. Oh, that was your doorbell. Yeah, I well, was it's I actually it on the recording. It was a timer that uh, I had going to kind of try <laughs> to keep us. And I didn't think the the way I had the uh, audio routed, I didn't believe that it, that was going to come through. But apparently I was wrong. All yeah. right. Let me get out of this uh, screen sharing thing here. You can Just, probably in post, right? Take care of it. Yeah. Uh, no, I like it. I think you should leave it in. Sounds very English. I'll, just, actually. I'll blame it on. I'll blame it on uh, Simon. Yeah, make it sound like his uh, clock went off. While right. He was. Anyway, uh, so that that was interesting to me. Um, the the most interesting thing about that whole thing from Simon was the fact that BA decided to not opt for auto land capability, and I'm kind of curious as to uh, how much money that saved them, and then how many times in history have they been impacted by uh, low visibility approach situations where you know the auto land would have gotten them on the ground and Pro- probably need to stop you there uh, it was simon's headline oh, that's yes. but that's not what did i say BA. you said ba oh you i'm sorry BA. no ba is much bigger airline i think i said i expect that simon's probably working for a smaller airline that probably didn't need oh a budget i see it. okay i'm sorry they're pretty good so he, he was just saying that his airline has a similar procedure when they do Cat 2 approaches. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, so, um, yeah. Uh, and, it yeah, it, it is. I, I guess it's probably complicated in the explaining. It's probably simpler when you do it in reality. But to me, despite Simon's fine explanation, it still sounds incredibly difficult overly complicated compared with the way you and I do it and Dana does it. So I don't know. I, I well, guess I'm much used to the, happier with the way that we do it. You see, you guys never got to experience that. And when I was flying the RJ, that's what exactly what we did. We were cat two certified and, uh, it's, uh, not my favorite procedure to do because it's, you know, so late in the, in the, uh, the realm of picking up the runway to try to transition the visual to land the airplane, just, it's it's almost crazy to me. So, um, 
I much prefer the Autoland method, although the Autoland doesn't always work terrific either in our aircraft. I don't know about the bus, but uh, there was uh, one time I, I remember talking about on the show that the airplane at about 20 feet decided to start climbing away from the ground whilst the throttles were at idle. So, yeah, that wasn't uh, wasn't a fun was that an actual uh, Category 3 Autoland, or was that a practice one? That was uh, was actually set up to be an a- actual Cat 3 Autoland, because the, the weather was Cat 2 when we were in the area, okay. and as we were coming in, it was clearing, thank God. Mm-hmm. So when we landed, it was probably, I think it was 4,000 4, RVR right around there. Uh-huh. So it was plenty of visual time reference to be able to save it, but it was it was ugly. So everything so. was protected then. I mean, the weather was pretty low, so yes, everything should have been protected. protected. And it was just the uh, the machine itself, the airplane. It was. Hmm. We know sad of that one. <laughs> yeah, I'd say yeah, not good. So, not good. I, anyways, yeah. So that's uh, you know, it. I've done it. I've seen it um, in the RJ, and his explanation is excellent. It's uh, it's hard to imagine what it's like without ever doing it, but imagine just transitioning to hand flying right there at you know 100 foot yeah we uh in the 727 we did not have category three capability either or autoland so you know it was a cat cat two was the lowest that we could go and i don't really recall any time that we couldn't get in because of the uh, low visibility condition so yeah well i'm i have to uh, shout out for Airbus here because they've really built the aircraft a- around an order land. Every approach is effectively an order land unless you interrupt it and take over manually. So uh, and it, it is seamless. And uh, of all the dozens that I've flown uh, operationally uh, in my 24 years with the company, uh, they've all been absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, the, L- the L-1011 was another airplane that uh, was just, uh, it, we were, you, you were just in awe watching the Autoland system do its thing. And in fact, occasionally we'd just do it just to see it do it because we'd go, oh, well, let me try that next time I'm hand flying it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very, very well engineered uh, uh, Autoland system on that airplane amongst other things. Simon, thank you very much for your, uh, your feedback. And I do apologize for, um, saying that you flew for BA, Big Airlines. Um, my apologies for mistaking what you actually wrote here. So uh, I should pay more attention, be a little bit more attention to detail kind of person, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Well, at least we, I have my, you, my friends, you know, making, you know, keeping me straight. And uh, we just <laughs> dipped below that 50% again. Dang it. Oh, well. Um, Next week. Better luck. Yeah. We'll, we'll try harder. Nick is a better guy than I was than I would be because I was just going to let you go on, Ron. I heard it too. <laughs> Thanks. I'm let you dig I, a saw, big hole. I saw the text that you sent. <laughs> I was like, "Nah, I'm just going to let him go." <laughs> mean, okay. Mean well, with that, uh, with that blunder by myself, um, I think it's now time for us to end this. It's probably going to be a little bit longer than three hours this show, but I think uh, uh, you guys will, you know, give us a break with that. Um, so. As we always do at the end of the show, uh, we want to remind you that if you want to learn more about our show, you can head over to airlinepilotguy.com, where you'll find information about the community, which is the most important thing, uh, the crew, uh, merchandise, uh, the coffee fund, and so much more. And we also have uh, apps for your smartphone and tablet devices, both the iOS and Android platforms on the appropriate stores. 
they're free and ad free so check those out and uh, social media we're there as well yeah on twitter we uh, are uh, at apg crew so anything with that we'll uh, we'll take a look at and uh, on facebook uh, just search the facebook uh, usual address for uh, airline pilot guy and you'll find us yes and we're also on slack apg listeners please join us on our slack team slack is a communication coordination and sharing platform that works on your mobile laptop or browser on Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel. And I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1. Hotel India, 1-1, Echo 1. And see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel. And um, in forthcoming shows, we hope to uh, get all of the feedback that we had lined up today covered, uh, including feedback from Christian regarding the A380, Andrew, um, and uh, Jim Howard with some audio feedback regarding the time a u.s air force f4 almost shot down a b-52g so look forward to uh, covering all of that and more news next week and until then wishing you clear skies unlimited visibility and tailwinds take care and god bless bye buddy hasta la vista baby (laughs) baby Good day.